Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I feel in doing this show, the least that I can offer you is honesty and let you know what you can expect in any given show so that if we're not delivering for you in whatever you've come to expect in this program for the next four hours, I think you're entitled to look elsewhere. I don't want to disappoint anyone, but you will not hear a single mention of Harry and Meghan being chased by paparazzi. There's going to be no, no discussion about it. No debate about it, no questioning of their story, because I was looking at all the the hyperbolic coverage of this story. People say, oh, they're not truthful, or saying, oh, my goodness, they're the victims of the same thing as Princess Diana. And I'm just thinking, and what I'm not trying to minimize what happened to Princess Diana, but I'm just thinking, who cares? I, I don't think I would know these people if I ran over them. And maybe that's a poor analogy to use when they're in a in the midst of a uh, possible car chase. But uh, if you are looking for Harry and Meghan discussion, I'm sorry. This is not the place for you. However, um, one of the things that I do think people need to be aware of is th- what happens when you do something. Meaning if you do something when you're in power your political party, your religion, your ethnic group, all of a sudden, when the tables turn, all of a sudden, you may find someone doing that to you. Uh, Let me take you back in time to, I don't know, what, what year is it, 2023? Two years ago. Back then... Yes, that's right. Back in the days when uh, people were wearing masks everywhere and you needed to get a vaccination and show a vaccine card just to get into your own bedroom. What was that, Matt Blaze? You saying that was me? Yeah, that was you. Well, I didn't do anything. How could that have been me? I don't know. That's why it was that computer. I see. Well, I didn't touch it, so I don't know what that could have been. Anyway. Um, so, uh, way to disrupt my whole vibe here. But anyway, 2021, House Democrats were in the majority. And they made a move to kick Marjorie Taylor Greene, very controversial Republican from Georgia, off her committees. And at the time they did that, some, even within the Democratic tent, privately feared that this move would backfire. Up to that point, it was well accepted that each party had the discretion, the prerogative, to determine its own members' committee assignments. And if a lawmaker stepped out of line, 
it was generally left in the hands of that member's party leadership. What enforced that tradition was not official. It was just tradition. It was unwritten, but very easily understood. Today's majority is tomorrow's minority. And the shoe will be eventually on the other foot. And that's precisely what happened. When the Republicans won Congress last year, they found, the Democrats found, that the fears of a slippery slope were very well-founded. One of the Republicans' first moves this year, after flipping the House from Democrat to Republican, was to oust Congressman Adam Schiff, Congressman Eric Swalwell, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, from certain panels in open retaliation for the actions that Democrats had taken, not only against Marjorie Taylor Greene, but against Republican Congressman Paul Gosar of Arizona. Why are we talking about this? What does this have to do with the price of tea in China or the price of eggs at Pathmark, which thankfully are coming back down to normal. Thank you very much. Get to eat eggs again. Don't have to stick with these egg substitutes. And a lot of people. So now Democrats are threatening to open a Pandora's box because Democratic Party leaders have blessed a move yesterday by Congressman Democrat Congressman from California, Robert Garcia, to force a vote on expelling George Santos, who has recently been indicted on multiple federal felony charges. Sure, there are a lot of Democrats and plenty of Republicans who will say that Santos deserves it. He's admitted to fabricating much of his life story, including his own name, and lying to his constituents about it, and he has now been charged with misusing campaign funds and falsifying his financial disclosure forms, among others. But moving directly to expulsion represents a major breach of House precedent where accused and even indicted lawmakers have been afforded the right to defend themselves, whether in court or before the House Ethics Committee. The only two expulsions since the Civil War were of uh, Michael Myers, not not the guy from Halloween, but Michael Ozzie Myers in 1980, and one of my favorite congressmen of all time, who I still think got a raw deal, uh, in 2002. More on that in a minute. That came after they were convicted of federal crimes and refused to resign. So... The question I've got for you is, I'm going to give you my opinion, but if you want to offer me yours, tell me. 800-848-9222. I don't care whether you love George Santos, whether you can't stand George Santos, or whether you don't have much of an opinion on George Santos. But I'd like to know, do you think Congress should expel George Santos? And why or why not? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me give you my answer. My answer is, and look, I didn't. I don't live in George Santos's district, but I wouldn't have voted for George Santos. I um, would not vote for George Santos if he runs for re-election again, which he appears to be doing. I think he's definitely a liar and very possibly a criminal. He should absolutely not be expelled from Congress. The people who should determine whether or not George Santos is their congressperson are the people in his district, and there's going to be a trial next year. And the two congressmen that have been expelled since the Civil War, those people at least got a trial. If we're going to say 
that we're taking this decision away from Santos's constituents and instead giving it to a jury. Let's give it to a jury because what this will do, what this does is it basically sets a new precedent and says that any member of Congress who's indicted doesn't matter if they're overwhelmingly elected and reelected with 80, 90 percent of the vote by their constituents and their constituents keep sending them back. What we are saying is all you have to do is indict a member of Congress and catch him lying and Congress will be well within its precedential grounds to expel that person. And that is a dangerous precedent because an indictment means nothing. An indictment is just an accusation. I don't think, at the very least, before a guilty conviction, any member of Congress, and I don't care, Democrat, Republican, independent, liberal, conservative, whatever, I don't think any member of Congress should be expelled by their colleagues. There's a reason that you get to vote for the House of Representatives every two years, because it is a House that is representative. It is a House and a body that there's there's an opportunity for instant turnover. Santos is already running for re-election. If you don't think Santos is doing a good job, don't vote for him. If you really don't think he's doing a good job and you don't live in his district, contribute to his opponents. There's about 20 running against him. If you really think it's so important that Santos has to be removed before his term is up next year, then what you should do is join me in calling for New York State to implement what other states have, recall of public elect, of, of public officials. But to simply say that the voters in these districts bear no responsibility whatsoever, and that uh, if you find out a member of Congress has lied, oh my goodness, lying in Congress, what's next? Gambling in Casablanca? If we're seriously saying that all you have to do is catch a congressman lying and get him indicted, then something tells me there are going to be a lot of votes in the future of the House of Representatives to expel democratically elected members of Congress. And I don't think that's a good thing. The people that determine who should be in Congress should be the voters, not other politicians. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. I'll take your calls in a moment. Let me tell you about that other congressman that was expelled from Congress. As far as I'm concerned, he got a raw deal. Um, But he was convicted of a crime, so I can understand why it happened. That other member of Congress was my favorite member of Congress, maybe of all time, but certainly in the last two decades. And that was Democratic Congressman from Ohio, Jim Traficant, an original, a guy that uh, I had the privilege of interviewing after he came out of prison, and a guy that was just an incredible human being. If I'm ever an elected official, I will strive to be an elected official in the mold of Jim Traficant. This is what Jim Traficant said on the floor of the House of Representatives when Congress was voting to expel him. And they voted overwhelmingly, Democrat and Republican. The vote was 420 to 1 to expel him. Here was Jim Traficant. Do I do my hair with a weed whacker? I admit. (laughs) But take into consideration what you're doing. The two members who violated a 17-year-old page boy and a 17-year-old page girl, which is rape in every state, were not expelled. And he was right. 
So it looks like Santos will not be expelled this week. The Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, told reporters yesterday that he would move later this week to send the matter to the Ethics Committee, which he said would move rapidly on this. So uh, I think there is a lot of uh, energy behind the movement for a Santos expulsion. Again, I wouldn't vote for Santos, but as far as I'm concerned, I don't think he should be expelled. I think the decision should lie with the voters. At the very least, you got to wait until there's a conviction because an indictment is just an accusation. And here in this country, because of things like the Sixth Amendment and natural law, you have a presumption of innocence. And George Santos is as innocent as you are, unless you happen to be listening in prison where we have many listeners, in which case you're probably not as innocent as George Santos is. What do you think? And why? 800 Five open lines. We're going to get to you in a moment. Let me tell you what's coming up. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I certainly have. I have known a lot of young couples. And when I say young, I mean early 30s, mid-20s, probably no one younger than that. But I know a lot of young couples in recent memory and even a couple of older couples that are having a very difficult time with uh, fertility and having children. So Amy Klein has been writing a, a column about fertility, and she wrote a book about it. And I read her column in the New York Post over the weekend, on Mother's Day, actually. And it was so interesting. Apparently, a lot of companies, because of all these people that are struggling to have children— a lot of companies are canceling Mother's Day. And Amy Klein makes the case that that should not happen, that Mother's Day should not be canceled. We'll talk to her in about 15 minutes. 800-848-9222. Anne is in Maryland. Hello, Anne. Hi. Well, first of all, I was calling about something else, but I want to comment on the fertility that's caused by the birth control pills. I worked for NIH and I had the inside computer at NIH 20 years ago, and I could tell you, when they would when they would send in grant requests, they canceled all the people, the doctors that were trying to do research on why so many American women were infertile. It's the birth control pills. So the government did not want to give that information out, so they never gave out the grants. Secondly, um, you've got to be careful that you mention Congressman Santos because. When I was listening here on the radio, I thought you were talking about Governor Santos in Florida. Oh, that's people that's, are going to get confused. You have to use the title ahead of his name. Well, and but thirdly, but, can uh, I speak? Yeah, go ahead. Give it a shot. And that, and yeah, go ahead. People I, are wondering why everything's escalating with these migrants and immigrants. Well, I can tell you why. I was with the government forty years. Because they're looking for to put all those people in our streets. They couldn't get Americans to riot and demonstrate in the streets to the degree where they could but call w- in the U.N. W- blue hats to keep what the peace. Is, what does that have to do with George Santos? 
Well, I mentioned my comment about him. I said you have to say. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Let me be very clear. Is any does anyone think that Ron DeSantis is in danger of being expelled from the House of Representatives? I mean, the guy can be a polarizing guy with book bans and abortion bans and Disney bans. But uh, I don't even think the House of Representatives would uh, would move to expel Ron DeSantis. Yes. I mean, was there a lot of confusion there about George Santos versus Ron DeSantis, Congressman Santos, Governor DeSantis? Maybe there was. I guess, uh, you know, I guess some people get lost in translation. Let me be very clear. I believe Congress should not expel George Santos, even though I think he's probably a pathological liar and very possibly a criminal. I think at the very least you have to wait till there's a criminal conviction. Otherwise, we're in a brave new world for the worse. 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Al, what do you think? Good morning to you, Frank. You know, uh, Congressman Santos, who represents a section of Queens and Long Island, Nassau County, I agree with you. Uh, Even though he's been uh, indicted on federal charges, I believe, uh, he hasn't been convicted. And I think that it would be a bad precedent as we move forward if he was to be expelled by his colleagues. I think the, uh, the speaker would like to save his position. He's going to try to postpone it. But unfortunately, I think in the future, Democrats and some Republicans, unfortunately, will cross over and maybe he will be expelled. Yeah, well, thank you, Al. Uh, look, I, I want to be very clear. This is not a partisan issue for me. If it was the Republicans that were leading the push to expel um, I don't know, Ilhan Omar, because they feel that she lied about marrying a relative, or I'm not saying she did, but let, there's a lot of people that believe that she did, then I would be just as vociferously against that. The place to determine who sits in Congress is the voting booth. It is not. It should not be up to other politicians, and it should not be up to prosecutors, because all that will do, we've seen a lot of politically motivated prosecutions before, Uh, People like uh, Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, was indicted. Uh, People like Donald Trump were indicted. Now, I don't want to get into the specifics of each of those crimes, but all you then have to do if we're saying once you get indicted, you're out. All you have to do is find a prosecutor somewhere that's willing to indict a member of Congress and then expose that member of Congress as a liar. And I think that is a pretty dangerous place to be. What do you think? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Marianne is in the Queens. Hello. Hi. Uh, well, I believe that he shouldn't be expelled. Like I mentioned before, if we're going to expel people because they lie or do uh, things similar to what he did, so why Biden is a president? The guy's a liar. Every day he's lying. And besides that, the reason why he's being expelled is because he's a MAGA member. He is MAGA. That's the only reason why Democrats and Republicans want to get rid of him. I believe that they will pay for this. Let's see who is going to be in his position from now on. So if things continue the way it is, that the government, whatever it is, favor whatever they believe is what it has to be, the people who are the ones that elected this man. Right. And I believe that it's ridiculous what they're doing. Right. And and thank you, Marianne. And it's not as if the voters are not going to have a choice. There are going to be several Republicans running 
in a primary against Santos, if Santos even makes it that far. I mean, I would speculate that uh, there's a good chance he may end up getting convicted between now and a year from November, and he won't be able to run for re-election. But um, even if he does, the Republicans are going to have a choice of a lot of other good Republicans. There's talk of uh, people like uh, State Senator Jack Martins. There's talk of people like uh, Andrea Katsimatidis. I don't know if that's something that she's interested in, uh, but uh, she's certainly been talked about as a candidate. There's talk of uh, a whole bunch of people, Republican and Democrat. On the Democratic side, you have a a different candidate announcing almost every day uh, that they want to run for this seat. Uh, Tom Suozzi seems to be interested, the former congressman who held the seat. And as far as Marianne's comment, though, I agree with the bulk of what she said, that it was the people that elected him and the people that should take him out. Uh, The one thing that I part company with her on is that the only reason they're trying to do this is because he's a MAGA member. I don't think that's true because there are a lot of hard right members of Congress that proudly label themselves as MAGA that Congress is not moving to expel. And when Santos ran... He didn't run as a Trump Republican. He ran as kind of a moderate Republican. It's only once his lies got exposed that he made a push towards the hard right to sort of, uh, I don't know, paint himself as a victim. When he was doing his press conference after his indictment, he was using a lot of Trumpian language. But I uh, don't think he has anywhere near the depth of support that Trump did when he tried that whole thing. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. I agree with you. Anything before conviction is too low a bar and subject to being arbitrary and capricious. I completely agree, Robert. Thank you. Well said. And you, unlike me, you said it very succinctly. Let me tell you, for the Democrats pushing this, this is a huge mistake for you. Because what this does is this paints a, a target on the back of all of your most controversial members. You want to talk about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Let's talk about who paid for her ticket to the Met Gala. You want to talk about Ilhan Omar? Let's talk about her controversy with people that she's been in relationships with and running afoul possibly of nepotism laws. You want to talk about uh, people like Alcee Hastings, the impeached judge that went on to um, get elected to Congress from Florida. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of smoke there. And I'm not suggesting those people be expelled either, because if there was a movement to expel any of those people, I'd be saying the exact same thing I'm saying now about Santos. I'm telling you, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Expulsion is not the answer when it comes to Santos. It's to run someone against him next year and to beat him in an election. Failing that, you then need to think about a criminal conviction. That's it. Indictment alone, not enough. And let me be clear, talking about Congressman George Santos, not Governor Ron DeSantis, lest anyone think that there's a push to expel him from the House of Representatives, even though he hasn't served there in at least six years. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to talk fertility and Mother's Day and canceling Mother's Day with Amy Klein. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Whoa, you know, you know, you know, you know you're my 
the child's wild Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah When it came to winning Blue Ribbon Well, I bet you taught the other kids how Well, I can see the judge's eyes As they handed you the prize I bet you took the cutest bow Yeah, you must have been a beautiful baby Cause baby, won't you look at you now Come on, The great Bobby Darren uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, it's funny. A month or two ago, I was having lunch or uh, dinner with uh, a friend of mine, and I knew that he and his wife had had a child through in vitro fertilization. They had had a difficult time conceiving. What I didn't know is, and I knew that there was another couple that we were friends with that are in the same boat, that they are trying to get pregnant with, through uh, in vitro fertilization. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. What are the couple? What are the chances of two couples in the same social group, uh, both going through that same process. And, but then my friend said to me, you know, such and such a couple, I'll call them uh, Bob and Ellen, that's not their names, but Bob and Ellen, both of their children were from uh, in vitro fertilization. So if, if so-and-so gets, gets pregnant and all of us get together with our children, my friend said to me, that means out of two, four, five, six children, your one will be the only one that was not conceived through in vitro fertilization. And it dawned on me how many people I know of multiple ages that are having a, a very difficult time conceiving. And having children. And there's a lot of theories as to why, but it is uh, raising a lot of questions. It's raising a lot of financial questions, raising a lot of ethical questions, a lot of cultural questions, a lot of sociological questions. And somebody that has been uh, seeking to answer those columns for those questions for at least the last decade has been Amy Klein. She was the New York Times fertility diary columnist and the author of The Trying Game, Get Through Fertility Treatment and Get Pregnant Without Losing Your Mind. Amy, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Amy, uh, for people that are unfamiliar with uh, with your writing and your work, give folks the Reader's Digest version of, of your story and how you came to start writing on this subject. You know, when I started fertility treatment and trying to get pregnant in about 2011 or 2012, no one was talking about this. No one was writing about it. If you wanted to find that information, you'd either have to go into these mommy blogs or you'd have to look up science information. And as a health journalist, I can look up science information. But I couldn't believe that there was a secret world that people were going to. You know, I'd go to these clinics and women were lined up in New York City at six in the morning before they went to their big C-suite jobs. And it just seemed like I had entered this secret world that nobody was talking about anything. And as a health journalist who often writes about what I'm going through, I just started writing about it. And I just started sending in columns to the New York Times because I couldn't believe that nobody was talking about such an important thing. And then they asked me, they said, oh, do you want to write a column about this? And we are both so naive. They're like, why don't you write about it for three to four months and then you'll get pregnant and then we'll follow your pregnancy. You know, neither of us had any idea that it would take me at least three more years, four miscarriages and 10 doctors nine rounds of IVF to finally Oof. get pregnant with our right. daughter. Well, I'm curious because I share a lot of personal details about my life on the radio. And at times I find it very 
therapeutic. And at other times, it's very it's very challenging to be that open and that intimate with total strangers about some very, uh, very tough times that you might be dealing with. It's certainly uh, very much a frustration for my wife and my family when I share details about things that I'm going on in my life that uh, that uh, that they'd rather me not share. What was that like for you emotionally to share such intimate details that maybe traditionally you'd only share with your best friend to share them with such a wide readership? You know, it wasn't like, oh, the day I had a miscarriage, I would publish the same story. You know what I mean? I would write about it for myself and then I would formulate it. It's not maybe not the same as radio because I would have time to mm-hmm. formulate it and think about what I wanted to say. And um, it was interesting. There were a lot of comments that weren't positive. You know, why is this? Well, someone wrote an article about me. Should we have sympathy for a 42-year-old trying to get pregnant? And she wrote this whole article how she got married when she was 25 and she had all her kids and then she got divorced. So why should I be so lucky to, like, get married at 39 and then get to have a child? And, you know, why should we have sympathy for someone like me? So there was a whole bunch of comments like that. Um, And at a certain point, I just had to have my husband read through the comments because it was hard to not only be going through what I was going through, but also to be like hopped up on hormones and super emotional and going through all these things. But, you know, for everyone who wrote a comment like that or said something like, why don't you just adopt, which is super ignorant to say, there were, you know, hundreds of people who to this day say, you're helping me so much. Thank you for saying this. Thank you for writing about baby envy, you know, being jealous of my pregnant friends. Thank you for talking about your miscarriage because no one else is talking about it. So most of the time I just had to remember that I was helping other people while I was also helping myself. Well, that's terrific. I know maybe this is outside the scope of uh, what you uh, write about or are comfortable talking about, but maybe you're, I'm sure it's something that you've thought about and looked into. Do you have a theory as to why so many couples uh, seem to be struggling with fertility these days? Some people have said it's the age of the people uh, that are trying to have children. Other folks have said it's environmental factors, the food, the water, other other uh, factors in the environment. I'm just curious if you have a theory. Well, the average age of, I think, the American woman of marriage is now 30, if I'm reading the Census Bureau figures correctly. So if that's the average age. And the fertility rate, I think, is declining in all age groups except for over 35, 40, and 45. So the age of the woman, the age of the woman's egg is the most important factor in fertility. There's other factors, of course. There's the uterus, there's sperm problems, but it is the age of the egg. And it's not a blame thing. That's just the truth. The the later marriage age, the more trouble you have getting pregnant and staying pregnant. So that's number one. And there's more sperm problems as well due to environmental factors. I think something like 50% decline in sperm is very sharp. If people just tune in, we're talking with Amy Klein. You might have read her uh, op-ed in the New York Post on uh, Mother's Day, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. You can check out her book, The Trying Game, Get Through Fertility Treatment and Get Pregnant Without Losing Your Mind. Amy, uh, tell me about your your book. Is it largely a chronicling of your journey? Is it uh, a lot of things that you learned from 
writing the column. What's your book about mostly? Um, the book is a combination of my journey, but it's also taking the reader through every part, every aspect of fertility treatment, the emotional, psychological, financial, and technical aspects. So I do talk about things like baby envy and how to deal with, you know, not feeling happy for other people. I talk about what happens when um, you don't have money to pay for fertility treatment. But it really begins with this feeling like, oh, my God, I thought getting pregnant was going to be so easy. I thought that was going to be the easy part. Now, how do I deal with the fact that I have to start fertility treatment and where do I start? And, you know, a lot of it is my journey. Some of it is my journey, but I didn't go through everything. You know, I'm not a single mom. I'm not freezing my eggs. I'm not gay. I didn't hire a surrogate. There's a lot of things that I didn't go through. So I speak to, in every chapter, I tell part of my own story. I talk to experts, researchers, therapists, doctors, and then I talk to other people who have been through the same journey. You know, there's a whole chapter on religion about um, how faith can help or hurt your journey. There's also what to do at work. You know, how do you deal with work issues, telling them, do you not tell them? I just, you know, I wanted it to be an A to Z to fertility treatment because, an interesting thing happened from when I started to when I came out with the book. You know, I always thought I'd write just a memoir, but by the time that my book came out, I started writing the book, I realized from going, there was no information out there to there was almost too much information out there. And now for people who have fertility troubles, it feels like there's so much information that's so overwhelming. And where do I begin and how do I start? What questions mm. do I ask my doctor? What do I tell my mother-in-law? Like, how do I tell her to butt out, you know? Do I have to throw my best friends a baby shower? So I just wanted someone to be able to pick up this book wherever they're at in their journey or if they wanted to give it to their workplace or give it to their friends. I wanted them to be able to have like a capsule, you know, just to jump into whatever they're up to, to wade through all the information. There's too much information out there now. So I just wanted it to be the ABCs of infertility. Well, that's terrific. And again, if people want to check it out or get it for someone, it's called The Trying Game. Uh, Amy, let me ask you, We, my wife and I are very close with a couple that we know is, um, you know, having a difficult time uh, having a child and they're going through uh, fertility treatment. I'm, I'm not really sure where they are, where they're at. But, um, you know, they've had a number of miscarriages, and I know that's been very challenging for them uh, emotionally, physically, et cetera. And, you know, both of us, my wife and me, both of us want to be um, there for this couple and encouraging of them and let them know that we're supportive of them. But we don't necessarily want to keep bringing this up if it's not necessarily something that they want to talk about at any given moment. What advice would you give to uh, people like me? who want to be supportive of a couple that is going through this sort of a thing, but doesn't necessarily want to keep bringing up something which might be a sore subject? You know, that's very nice of you, and that's a very good question. And every person is different. You know, I might have been writing about this journey in the New York Times, but I didn't want to go out and talk about it all the time. And I didn't want people to ask me, how's it going? Are you pregnant? And I just said, you know what, when there's news, I'll tell you. But everybody's very different. So I think that you should each probably ask them separately, maybe, maybe not as a couple, like, and say, you know, we're here for you and we want to be there to support you. What's the best way to support you? Do you want to talk about it? Do you not want to talk about it? And the, the wife might feel differently than the husband. 
you know, my husband felt like I had a lot of people to talk to and he didn't have a lot of people to talk to. And he might have appreciated someone like you taking him out and being like, hey, do you want to tell me what's going on? Or do you want to just like have a beer and watch the game? You know, so I think it's good to um, maybe ask them separately or, you know, and just say, we're here for you. Please tell us what you need. Do you want us to ask you? We're thinking of you. Do you not want us to ask you? And do you want us just to wait for you to tell us? Wondering if you can speak to the financial toll that couples who go through fertility treatment have to deal with. I know one person that went through this that uh, essentially changed jobs because he was able to get a health insurance plan that would cover his uh, he and his wife going through this, which he wouldn't have been able to afford in his previous job, even though he was making a, a lot of money. He said it was so expensive he wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, give folks an idea of what the financial toll is for something like this. Well, the average round of one cycle of IVF is over $20,000, and most people need a, about three cycles. So that could, and then that's not including medication and other kind of testing. And recently, New York, I think a, a year and a half ago, New York passed a bill that companies over 50 people have to cover. Um, fertility treatment and places like New Jersey cover, but not a lot of companies are exempt from fertility treatment and a lot of people don't have full-time jobs that will cover that kind of stuff. So it could be, you know, we're talking sixty to $100,000 at least for people who wow. need fertility treatment. Wow. Uh, aside from the financial toll and the toll that it might take on uh, a woman's health going through this sort of a thing, what are some of the other common struggles that a couple who is struggling to conceive and going through the fertility process may deal with? Well, you know, your whole life is on hold because it's not like, oh, you know, let's say you have a heart transplant or a broken leg, you know when the operation is mm. and when you're going to recover. You know, it's just like, okay. You're starting a cycle. You might have to come in on Monday. You might have to come in on Wednesday. And you have to come in four times a week, and you have to be late to work. And then you have to – you're going to have an egg retrieval, and you're going to be out the rest of the day, and you're going to have to take a day off. And then you're going to have to do a transfer, and you might have to be on bed rest. Your whole life is basically up in shambles. I can't tell you how many weddings I missed, how many travel plans I couldn't do. You're living in this liminal state between – you know, we're just a fun, happy couple having fun, and we're parents. You're, you're neither, and it's very hard to make plans just mm. on a daily basis. And as a woman, you know, there's a lot of things you can't do. You might not be able to be drinking. You can't um, go into a jacuzzi. You might have to curtail your exercise schedule. So it might sound trivial, you know, and it, it would be fine if you were doing it for one month or three months. But, you know, it took me – three years until, you know, my fifth pregnancy. And half the time I was pregnant because I had four miscarriages. So your whole life is really on hold and it's really challenging to just partake in everybody's day-to-day -day life because you just don't know what you're doing and you're waiting for this thing and you don't even know if it will ever happen. So that's a big mental, emotional challenge. 
Are there, and I'm sure through your writing, you've heard from so many different couples that have been through this. And while I'm sure there, there's no, um, there's no uniform set of of rules. I'm sure you've heard a lot of common trends. And what I'm wondering is what what is the stress on a relationship? For a couple that goes that goes through this, uh, I've known many couples, unfortunately, that have lost children at various ages. And what I've observed from them is sometimes it can uh, drive them uh, apart, and sometimes it brings them much closer together. I'm wondering what does going through fertility with all that entails—the financial difficulty, the scheduling difficulty, the health difficulty, the uncertainty—what does that do to your relationship with your partner? I haven't heard from many people that brings them closer together. But you have not. That's you because said. no, I have not. But I think that a lot of um, it, you know, it tests your relationship at a very usually early point in your relationship. Um, you know, especially if it's primary, the first time you're trying to have a child. You know, you might guys. You know, maybe even you know, my husband and I dated. We were together 18 months before we got married, but I got pregnant and miscarried right after the wedding. And so we were went from like fun dating couple, planning a fun wedding to straight into infertility. I think what um, a lot of complaints that I see, and I sit on a lot of like Facebook groups where people are talking about this kind of thing, is their expectations of their husband or their partner, how people deal with things very differently. Like my partner wants a kid, but he's not as involved in the same process as I am, or he wants to know, is this really worth it? Or he doesn't understand, you know, the whole, my whole column in the times basically started because my husband was like, why can't you be happy for that other couple? Cause a, an acquaintance of mine call, called me to tell me she was pregnant and my husband is like, why aren't you happy for them? And I'm like, I'm not happy for them. Why should I be happy for them? So I think, you know, just going into this from an early part of your relationship before you've been through childbirth together, before you figured out how you guys do things, I think men and women or women and women or men and men, they just approach it. They Two people just approach it very differently. Like I was very, very, very fixated on every part, I guess I would call it the micro part of the treatment. How many eggs did I get? How many survived? How many became embryos? And my husband was kind of like, big picture, let's think big picture. Okay, how many cycles are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do if four cycles don't work? How are we going to pay for it? He was kind of just trying to keep his eye on the ball. And I appreciated that a lot, you know, that long term. But I, I needed someone in there in the trenches with me to cry over oh, I thought I was going to get six eggs and I only got three eggs. And I hear a lot of women complain about the way that their partners are not able to be there for them in the way that they want them to be. And one of the things that I always tell them is, you know, A, your partner is going through this too. They might not be the one suffering from the infertility. It might be the woman's infertility. It might be the male infertility. But they're going through it and, they, are, you know, they might not be your primary partner you know, like my husband was my partner going through infertility, but I had a cadre of friends that I could complain to or talk to about, you know, the nitty gritty when he wasn't on board with that. 
The um, You had a terrific column in the New York Post on Mother's Day where you said that uh, a lot of companies out of sensitivity for what some would-be mothers are going through are uh, offering people a chance to skip out on things like Mother's Day emails or Mother's Day promotions. Uh, before we get into what you believe is the right course for these companies to take, I think this might be new to a lot of people. Tell people what, what some companies are doing. I think a bunch of companies are saying, you know, Mother's Day can be a really sensitive time for people. Um, if you'd like to opt out of our Mother's Day email, then you could click here. And, you know, I think uh, a crafting company, a makeup company, there were like five or six emails. If you'd like to opt out of Mother's Day, you can do so right here. And why is this not necessarily a good thing? A lot of people might hear about this and say, okay, this is a way to be sensitive to people that are having a difficult time having a child. What's wrong with this? I think there's nothing wrong with it per se that a company is trying to be sensitive. And it's funny, you know, like I'm on the other side of this now. You know, my daughter's seven and a half and... I couldn't look online on Mother's Day. I couldn't be on Facebook. I couldn't be on Instagram. It was just too much. And I definitely decided to take a social media break. I just don't want there to be this pitting. You know, of course, I want sensitivity for uh, fertility challenge women, for women who wanted to have babies that couldn't. It could be very hard for people who wanted children who didn't. It's just, you know, for... I don't want women who do celebrate Mother's Day to feel bad about celebrating Mother's Day, and it's hard to strike that balance. All right. Uh, Amy, uh, thank you very much for the time this morning. I hope people check out the book, The Trying Game. They can go to your website, thetryinggamebook.com. A great column. I'm going to share it on uh, on my, my social media outlets as well. hope we can talk again. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Must be missing an angel. 
by Tavares. One of the integral parts of Tavares or the Tavares brothers was Butch Tavares. And today is Butch Tavares' birthday. He is 75 years old today. God bless him. A, A gifted vocalist. And when it comes to funk, when it comes to soul music, there is nobody quite like Tavares. All right, 800-848-9222. Going to get back to your calls in just a moment. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll talk to Brian Kilmeade a little bit later. Uh, We'll talk a little AI next hour. A ton of stuff happening on the AI front. And uh, we'll get into that. So one of um, of my favorite games to, to play is ping pong, as you know. But there are all sorts of games that have taken on a life of their own as outdoor, backyard, I don't know what what you want to call them. I'll call them barbecue games. You go to some, and I'm talking about for adults, teenagers, young adults, adults. There's a whole bunch of them. There's uh, Can Jam, which is very popular, which I actually enjoy, where basically you're trying to throw a Frisbee into a garbage can. It's fun. It's very simple. Sure, it costs nothing to manufacture, and whoever came up with that game, I'm sure, is a multimillionaire. Then there's uh, ladder ball, which we have in our house, where you try to throw a rope with two balls on it onto a ladder, and then there's a scoring-based system based on where that uh, rope lands. But these days, the granddaddy of them all, the top dog, as it was, as it were, when it comes to backyard party games, is not a new game. It's been around for decades, maybe even a century. But for some reason, there has been an explosion over the last five to ten years in cornhole, aka beanbag. And I don't know what it is, but my neighbor Nick, he basically he joins cornhole tournaments. I was watching ESPN and apparently recently apparently the only sport that they air other than pickleball these days is cornhole. They've shown cornhole games on ESPN. You have a guy that looks uh, even more out of shape than I am as the star of the cornhole league. So, and I'm, it's fine, nothing against it. So, last year passed by a garage sale. I love a good garage sale. Any any opportunity to buy junk and frustrate my wife. And they have these little small, a small cornhole set. Not regulation, but fine, fine. It's just a little smaller than normal. I pick it up. It's like $20, $25. And I guess, I don't know what happened. It was not the best made cornhole set. And maybe we left it out in the rain once. I don't know what the situation was, but it kind of, it broke. We figured out, okay, it's cheap anyway. So now, as you know, there's some serious discussion that my wife and I may have another barbecue this year. So my wife says, do you want to get a regulation cornhole set, a real nice one? Because her brother, uh, she has several brothers that are great cornhole players, but she has one brother that could be a professional. I mean, no joke. He could be a professional. And uh, I said, sure, why not get one? So she tells me yesterday, I went online to look up how much these cornhole sets are. How much do you think they cost? And I said, I don't know. And I'm thinking it's going to be something expensive. So I guess something expensive. I said, I don't know. What is it, $50, $60? She says, regulation cornhole set is $200. $200 for a cornhole set? We're talking about eight beanbags 
and a piece of, of cardboard with a hole in it. $200. My, now, I guess people must be paying this. What has happened in this country where a cornhole set costs $200? Everyone was talking about the uh, crazy prices when it comes to eggs, when it comes to gasoline. I have oh not seen God. any coverage of this cornhole inflation crisis. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. The next year, the next two years, the next five years, the thing that will come to define every aspect of the world is artificial intelligence. It's not just me saying this. It is everybody, including people that are much smarter than I, who are much smarter than I am, who have been saying this and warning about the dangers of artificial intelligence and at the same time talking about the benefits of AI. And I've laid my cards on the table. One, I find ChatGPT, which is the AI chatbot that creates text with just a couple of prompts, I find it a lot of fun to play around with, okay? And maybe I'm only enabling it by continuing to occasionally play around with it to write children's books and to write song parodies and do things of that nature, but I find it fun. I also recognize the real practical benefits that AI offers us. We've seen, uh, I mentioned this last week, we have seen uh, sonograms analyzed by AI be more accurate in terms of diagnosing potentially something wrong than sonograms analyzed by human doctors. We have seen AI help uh, with astronomy and space exploration. There are so many different aspects of life that have already been improved and could conceivably be improved by artificial intelligence. For instance, think of all the work that you do in your daily life that's just totally tedious. Wouldn't it be nice if you could have AI do that to allow you to focus on something more creative or a better use of your expertise? But aside from that, AI offers a world of potential problems. I uh, The more I look at this and the more I see this, I believe that there's an excellent chance that this is how the world ends with artificial inter- intelligence, just like in The Terminator, just like in Battlestar Galactica, just like in The Orville. I, I believe there's ample reason and ample cause to be concerned. And you're seeing some countries move to prohibit chat GPT. But um, there's a lot of concerns about disinformation, a lot of concerns about every aspect of this. And 
there's a lot of concern about its use in the field of politics. OpenAI told a leading company that provides data to lobbyists and policy advocates that it can't advertise using ChatGPT for politics. So this Silicon Valley startup took action after the D.C. company Fiscal Note touted in a press release that it would use ChatGPT to help boost productivity in the multi-billion dollar lobbying and advocacy industry and enhance political participation. Afterwards, those lines disappeared from the press release and were replaced by an editor's note explaining that ChatGPT could be used solely for grassroots advocacy campaigns. I think the implication is clear that people are starting to use ChatGPT and AI in general to lobby. And there was an experiment done. They sent, researchers from Cornell University sent over 30,000 human-written and AI-generated emails to more than 7,000 state legislators on hot-button issues like gun control, reproductive rights. And they found that the lawmakers, the politicians they sent these to, were only slightly less likely to respond to the AI-written message. So they were almost as likely to respond to an AI-written letter on gun control or whatever as they were to a letter written by a, a human. So this is going to inject a whole new element into lobbying and into politics in general. Now, you remember I like to make the reference to uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, we attempt to prove that Mr. Chris Kregel is Santa Claus. You know, What if, rather than, let's say an issue that I'm concerned with, let's say uh, nonpartisan elections or proportional representation or ranked choice voting, in the old days, if I wanted to persuade uh, the mayor, the governor, the president to adopt a policy position that I liked, I would have to rally people to write letters, and I'd deliver those letters. Now, I could just have AI write 900 different versions advocating the same position. How is any elected official to know the, the difference? So this is potentially a major distortion of knowing what's going on. So, um, and look, let's not even start with what's going on in China. In the first known case of its kind, the Chinese police arrested a man earlier, just a couple of weeks ago, for using ChatGPT to fabricate a series of news articles about a train accident. China recently proposed new rules for AI chatbots, and they've implemented regulations governing the use of deep fake technology. But um, as the newsletter China Talk noted, the man who was charged for picking quarrels and provoking trouble, that's a classic catch-all offense in China, or really, I should say, for activities that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like. Generative AI is going to turbocharge lobbying. And uh, you have the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, they've already begun testing the use of artificial intelligence to write fundraising emails, according to the New York Times. The number of businesses and trade groups trying to sway U.S. policymakers on AI issues has skyrocketed. So it is a new game, a new ballpark, a new game out there, a new ball game, I should say, when it comes to AI.
you know what they're pointing to AI as a potential cure for or a potential exacerbator of? It's something that we've spent a lot of time covering on this program. Loneliness. Loneliness. The Surgeon General has talked about it. I've talked about it. I believe that the loneliness epidemic in this country is real. We have a lot of people that are very lonely, and that is having a profoundly negative impact on their on their psychological, their mental, and their uh, physical health. Now, experts are worried, apparently, that AI might further cocoon people from the relationships and conversations they need. But in the short term, AI-powered companions, pets, mental health support services that aren't real are already being drafted to fight this loneliness epidemic. See, there aren't enough therapists, counselors, and care providers in this country to support every lonely person. But AI-based services can be scaled and offered 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Three in four Americans say they experience loneliness. And according to Gallup, Gallup estimates 44 million are experiencing significant loneliness. We've told you how the Surgeon General said that uh, being lonely is almost the equivalent of smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Some mental health experts, though, are worried that risks from AI tools offering health services without regulatory approval can outweigh the potential benefits. Let's say you're struggling with depression or you're feeling suicidal or an eating disorder or whatever the case may be. And you think that by going to chat GPT and typing in what your issue is and uh, hoping to get some advice and some guidance, you don't know who's giving you that advice. No one's giving you that advice. They're not governed by any sort of ethical restrictions. They're not governed by any sort of board. And we've seen how inaccurate some of the things that come from ChatGPT can be. Um, so I, I don't know, uh, but uh, virtual therapists can benefit veterans who might be reluctant to open up to a person and might be uh, AI conversations might be a boon. For the 77% of Americans who say they want to age in their own homes. And, um, you know, there's a very real potential upside to AI. They might help with fall detection. So rural areas where three and four counties lack the cash to expand access to behavioral health services, they could also benefit. But uh, people with dementia who can't feed or walk pets to schedule or they might benefit from an AI pet that doesn't need to be fed or doesn't need to be walked. So uh, I think that um, I think that there's a lot of potential upside, but there's also a lot of potential negative. And I think what all this is leaning to, leading towards, the political aspect of it, the cultural aspect of it, the, the creative aspect of it, believe it or not, this is one of the major issues in the writer's strike right now. And you know what? Um... We've seen these AI radio shows. We've heard these AI-produced radio shows. Let's say I get into an argument with uh, the president of our network, Chad Lopez, or uh, I oversleep, or I'm uh, 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 drunk and high somewhere. What's to stop Chad from saying, all right, well, um, let's get AI, just program it to 
bash migrants all day and to take calls and to agree with what three out of four, four callers say and hang up on the fourth, they won't even know the difference. Frank can take the whole week off. Think about what this could mean in field after field that's going to be disrupted by AI. So what all this is leading towards is there needs to be some sort of regulation. There has got to be some guidelines, and I know other governments are trying this. I know Italy is trying something like this, to govern what's appropriate in the fields of AI. Now, a lot of people are saying it's too late. Pandora has already left the box. The genie is out of the bottle. I still think that something needs to be done. And you know who else is starting to recognize that? That is uh, Congress. Congress held hearings on this. And uh, Dick Blumenthal, the senator from Connecticut, he, which, he made these remarks. And he's done what I did, which, and which everybody who's done this in public has now done. He used remarks which were partially generated by AI. To, um, and he acknowledged Congress's struggle to impose meaningful regulations on social media. And he said, and he's right, I don't know if he came up with this or if um, an AI came up with this, Congress failed to meet the moment on social media. Now we have an obligation to do it on AI before the threats and the risks become real. So we're in a situation where some jobs are going to tradition away. This is a very different situation than social media. And according to NYU professor emeritus Gary Marcus at this hearing on Tuesday, humanity has taken a back seat. And I think this is a very, very scary time. Thoughts on where you see this going and what kind of regulations you'd like to see. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Here was Samuel Altman. He was he's the CEO of this company, OpenAI. Here are some highlights of his testimony before Congress on Tuesday. OpenAI was founded on the belief that artificial intelligence has the potential to improve nearly every aspect of our lives, but also that it creates serious risks we have to work together to manage. We think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. For example, the U.S. government might consider a combination of licensing and testing requirements for development and release of AI models above a threshold of capabilities. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong, uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. It's one of my areas of greatest concern, the, 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 the more general ability of these models to manipulate, to persuade, uh, to provide sort of one-on-one uh, you know, interactive disinformation. I think people are able to adapt quite quickly. Uh, when Photoshop came onto the scene a long time ago, you know, for a while people were really quite fooled by Photoshopped images and then pretty quickly developed uh, an understanding that images might be Photoshopped. Uh, this will be like that, but on steroids. There will be an impact on jobs. Uh, we try to be very clear about that, and I think it will require partnership between the industry and government, but mostly action by government to figure out how we want to mitigate that. Thoughts, questions, comments, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. By the way, yesterday my wife showed me this. uh, It doesn't work really on radio, 
but there is this beer commercial that was created by AI. I'm going to share it on my Facebook page. And um, I guess it's more of a parody of a beer commercial. So if you want to see it, you can go to Facebook.com slash Morano fan. And they say that for a variety of reasons, namely the flames that are in this, it really doesn't work well on radio because it's just there's a Smash Mouth song playing. And that's really the only thing you'd hear. People don't have the right amount of fingers. There's either there's anywhere between four and seven fingers on most people's hands. But they say this parody AI beer ad is a is causing all sorts of people to have nightmares. And yet it has gone viral. And it's similar to that uh, AI generated pizza ad. So this is going to be used in the world of advertising quite a bit as well. So I just shared that uh, AI generated uh, beer parody ad. If you want to read it or, or watch it. You can go to Facebook.com slash Morano fan. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this or anything else we're talking about. 800-848-9222. Chris is in Yonkers. Hello, Chris. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Good. <clears throat> Did you get my Facebook message about embryos? I, I uh, Oh, um, I don't think I did. Did I respond to it? No, you well, you didn't say thank you, I believe. Ah, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know that I my Facebook Messenger even usually works. The best way to reach me is usually email. And what's your email address? Uh, I'll put you on hold, Chris, and uh, and Kenneth will give it to you. Okay, thank you. All right, um, we'll continue with your calls in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Toy Soldiers by Martika. It is Martika's birthday today, uh, wishing her a happy 53rd birthday. If you ever want to know what kind of music that uh, we are playing on this program, join our Facebook group. Uh, Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters, or just uh, go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Um... I am a fan of the TV series Ted Lasso. Uh, my wife and I watched it uh, last night, and we enjoy it a great deal. And in, you haven't seen it. It's I, I don't want to go on and on about it because it's I, I don't, I'm not giving them a free commercial. They don't do anything for me. The least they could do is give me a break on the Apple TV subscription price that I'm paying. But um, it's a it's a very the, what's special about it 
is it's a very funny show, but at the other time, at other times, it's a very deep show and a very meaningful show. And it really, even though it's a comedy, and at times it's a very silly comedy, it really does uh, tug on the heartstrings of emotions as well or better than any drama. And part of what, um, and I remember when my wife and I first started watching it, which was not long ago, we were new to this show, we started it maybe a year and a half ago, my wife said to me after the fourth or fifth episode, she said to me, you know, I really love Ted, he's so wholesome, she said to me, he makes me want to be a better person. And I kind of have that, and she's uh, much better with words than I am, she's a writer, and I kind of feel the same way about Ted Lasso. But then there was one aspect when I'd watched Ted Lasso um, the, in the opening credits. It would say, based on characters created for NBC Sports. And my wife said to me once, what, is, what does that mean? Well, I don't remember that anything like that before. Was that another show? I said, I don't know. So I did some research. And sure enough, there, were, there was a series of skits that NBC did Starring Jason Sudeikis as Ted Lasso, with the premise being, going back to 2012, so over a decade ago, the premise being that a football coach comes to coach a soccer team. And they did these kind of humorous little vignettes that are a lot different from the show. They're a lot different from the show. It's, they're much sillier, and Ted in those vignettes is not as nice as the character of Ted on the show. So anyway... Jason Sudeikis uh, did an interview with uh, The Guardian the other day, and he said in 2015 he was having dinner with his then-romantic partner, Olivia Wilde, when he wondered if he could revisit a character called Ted Lasso that he had created for this comedy skit. So um, Lasso, according to Jason Sudeikis, was originally belligerent. And here's what he told The Guardian, and I don't know if this is true, but he said that growing political tensions at the time inspired him to develop the character in a new direction. And he said, it was the culture we were living in. I'm not terribly active online, and it even affected me. Then you have Donald Trump coming down the escalator. I was like, okay, this is silly. And then what he unlocked in people, I hated how people weren't listening to one another. Things became very binary, and I don't think that's the way the world works. And as a new parent, we had our son Otis in 2014. I was like, boy, I don't want to add to this. Yeah, I just didn't want to portray it. So as a result, the character became warm, affable, a positive quote machine. Viewers first came to love at the height of the pandemic. So... um. A lot of the headlines around this all basically says Jason Sudeikis says he changed his Ted Lasso character because of Donald Trump. He's not exactly saying that. What he's saying is that the the sort of negativity in the world and in the media and in politics that started to be accelerated beginning around the time that Trump became a presidential campaign inspired him to make this character a nicer guy. And if you're not familiar with uh, with Ted Lasso. Here's an advice. Uh, again, the premise is he's a football coach from America that goes to England to coach a soccer team. And here is uh, some advice that he gives one of his soccer players that's originally from Nigeria, a great character named Sam. Coach, I'm, I'm sorry. You know what the happiest animal on earth is? 
Goldfish. You know why? No. Got a 10 second memory. Be a goldfish, Sam. Now, what a bit of wisdom. What a great bit of positivity. And um, I think about that all the time. You, when you're having a tough time shaking off criticism from a, a coworker or a, or, a, or a fan or, you know, whomever, or a, a family member, you'd be a goldfish. It's great. It's a great bit of wisdom. And Ted Lasso's filled with great little quotes like that that all underline positivity. And I was really struck by this because – and I'm not just blaming Donald Trump for this because – I think the the only thing that's potentially worse in terms of negativity and polarization in this country than Donald Trump and the way he behaves is the way Donald Trump's enemies behave, because they are, if possible, even more petty, even more vindictive, even more willing to cheat than Donald Trump is. And I think a lot of that was borne out in the Durham report. We're going to do a whole lengthy segment on the Durham report sometime soon, but I have been really sick over the last five years of what's happening in politics these days. And I, it makes me not even want to discuss politics on the radio because people get so nasty. They get so mean. It seems like uh, every day it's a war between, um, figuratively speaking, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You find the most polarized, ugly mean-spirited people on both sides of the aisle, and they're tugging for your attention. And I don't want to be a part of that. So I I have, on the radio for the last couple of years, been making an effort to go out of my way to be much more positive. I I came across some audio recordings that I had made on the radio when I first started doing a a radio show of my own about 12 years ago. And it was was basically the same. Let's say it's 80% the same. But there was a little bit of a, a mean-spirited nature that I that I don't think is present now that I've made an effort to uh, eliminate because I don't really want to add to the meanness. So I thought that was very interesting that Jason Sudeikis made this concerted effort to pivot this character from being belligerent to being super nice. And I thought that was uh, that was interesting to read. And I do. I think there's only maybe one or two episodes of Ted Lasso left this season. I've really enjoyed this uh, this season of uh, Ted Lasso. So comment on uh, anything you like. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. George Santos, fertility, AI, Ted Lasso, cornhole, sky's the limit. Five open lines. Brian Kilmeade still to come. AC report still to come. A lot of stuff to get to. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Russell is in White Plains. Hello, Russell. Hey, Frank, I don't think Pandora gets out of her box. Uh, Pandora lets all the evil of the world out because uh, she got doesn't really... Got it, got it, Russell. It's just an expression. It's just an expression. I, I get okay. it, I get it. I know you like to be correct, and there are a lot of people out there that need to know more. But, Frank, <coughs> sorry, um, you know, about AI, I don't think the problem is there's a shortage of therapists. I don't think anyone really values what therapists tell them. So I can see where AI might be a good thing. But would AI, would there be a confidentiality with an AI if you're an AI patient? And like, what if you were telling it you wanted to kill somebody or wanted to commit suicide? Would the AI have to report you? No, I don't think it would. I mean, it should. That's why I think we need some regulations. But as of now, it's the Wild West. 
these AI uh, chatbots, and we're just talking about one company here. I mean, there's there's a lot of mimicry going on in the AI arena right now. It's the Wild West. They're, these AI devices or software uh, protocols, they're bound only by the parameters that their company has created. Right. Well, you know, I think the technology tells us that it's, it's sort of crowdsourced and means that if there are inaccuracies, it's always improving, right? That's kind of the pernicious quality is you think it's always getting better. You know, I, I wonder why we just can't have more community facilities. How about pouring money into that so we can all get together? You know, that would be the answer that I would have. But, Frank, can I bring up one more thing about the AI? Why can it not be used to analyze cars in traffic? They all have computers. They weave in and out. They're speeding. You see them going 100 miles an hour on the highway. It's more dangerous on the roadways of this, this country than on the subways. But they're all obsessed with the mental health issues on the subway. The mental health issues on the roadways is more dangerous to all of us. Well, first of all, they are using AI uh, to analyze traffic patterns and to provide uh, updates in real time on traffic conditions. If you go to the website inrix.com, that's real-time traffic data provided by artificial intelligence. But the one thing I'd caution you, Russell, and thanks for the call, be careful what you wish for. Just like the situation with the expulsion, Uh, with uh, George Santos, not to be confused with the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. But um, these new AI traffic cameras might be peering into cameras, excuse me, peering into cars, seeking violations and seeking new ways to give you a ticket for speeding or something else. So be careful. Uh, I think there's a lot of this is really the argument with traffic is the same as AI with everything else. There's a lot of upside, but also uh, potentially a lot of uh, a lot of downside. All right. Um, I am a professional wrestling fan. My favorite wrestler of all time is Ric Flair. My favorite personality that has ever been a wrestler is Jesse Ventura. Because I was a fan of Jesse Ventura as a wrestler, as an announcer, as a mayor, as a governor, as a commentator, as an author. And whenever he comes on this show, which is not frequently enough for my taste, he's always just great. I loved his show, American Conspiracies. I loved, I learned, I loved his book about conspiracies. Before his book, I always thought Lincoln was killed by a lone gunman. And you read him in his book, and it's not... It's not fiction. There were many people that were executed as conspirators in Lincoln's assassination, including the first time the government ever put to death a woman by hanging from the Lincoln assassination. It's, I don't, don't get me started on the Lincoln assassination. We'll, we'll do a whole show on that soon. Uh, but love Ric Flair, love Jesse Ventura. But uh, one of the most famous wrestlers of certainly the 80s and 90s, I would say, was the immortal Hulk Hogan, or the, the incredible Hulk Hogan, later to be known as Hollywood Hogan. Then, in the late 90s, early 2000s, one of the best-known wrestlers was, without a doubt, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Now, the wrestlers that I just mentioned, Ric Flair, Jesse Ventura, Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan, they are as different in style, in look, 
in wrestling, um, you know, ability as anything. There's very little in common that Ric Flair has with Jesse Ventura as a wrestler. You look at their styles in the ring, they're very dissimilar. Then you add to that people like Scott Steiner, Triple H, Austin Idol. There is nothing that those wrestlers, Ric Flair, Austin Idol, Steve Austin, Scott Steiner, Triple H, Hulk Hogan, Jesse the Body Ventura, nothing they have in common except one thing. All of them, to one degree or another, based their act or their their gimmick, as it were, on the same guy. Superstar Billy Graham. Now, I know a lot of you who may not follow pro wrestling, um, you know, it's funny because I know a lot of you may not follow pro wrestling, know Billy Graham as a star evangelist. I first knew who Billy Graham was as a wrestler, and then I learned, oh, he's also this preacher that I guess some people care about. Billy Graham, superstar Billy Graham, was the be- one of the best-known wrestlers of the 70s and the 80s. And his real name wasn't Billy Graham. It was Eldridge Wayne Coleman, and he changed it because he became a Christian. And you ever hear a promo that Hulk Hogan does where he calls everybody brother? That is one of the many things that he took from superstar Billy Graham. And the reason Billy Graham called everybody brother is because that's what evangelists do. They call everyone brother or sister. Billy Graham was an incredible pro wrestler. He was, there were wrestlers that were strong before, like Bruno Sammartino. Um, there were wrestlers that were very charismatic before, like Gorgeous George. There was never a wrestler that looked as chiseled and like a bodybuilder before superstar Billy Graham. He was the first wrestler to have a very chiseled physique. He looked like he should be on the cover of Muscle and Fitness. Before him, wrestlers didn't look like that. After him, every wrestler tried to look like that. Jesse Ventura, Hulk Hogan, they would dye their hair bleach blonde. So did Ric Flair because of superstar Billy Graham. Everyone that I mentioned, to some extent or another, has, by their own admission, based so much of their act on superstar Billy Graham. And the guy was masterful at the microphone. This is a typical promo that he would do, and this was relatively late in his career. This was actually one of his last wrestling matches. This is a typical promo you'd hear from the superstar. That's right. This is my town, brother, Beantown, the North End, you understand? These are the people who stood by superstar Billy Graham when I was slain, when I was cut down, laid out on the operating table, facing disaster. These are the people who supported me the most. The Boston people are my people, brother. I'm coming back to your town for one reason, to bring some violence. I'm coming back to bring some mayhem. Coming back to hurt somebody. I'm coming back to bring the superstar Bill Hug back where it belongs, you understand? The dude tried to cut me down. The man tried to give me a low blow. The man gave me an attack when I wasn't looking. But I survived it. Did and you ever? I survived it, brother. And you were the you were the orator. You were the narrator. You were the commentator. You were there, brother. You saw it, you witnessed it. Superstar Billy Graham rose up. To live and fight another day. And I'm coming, brother. I'm coming down heavy. Take, take, take the word wrestling down of the marquee and put up street fight. Because that's what the dude is that's what the dude is gonna be in for. He's gonna be in for kicking, pushing, biting, and clawing. Superstar right. coming down. Gotta- uh, that's mean Gene Oakland that he's that he's talking to there. Um, I'll just end with this. Superstar Billy Graham was he was a bad guy, a heel. 
but he was so popular that he became one of the first heels that people rooted for. You know, Brian Kilmeade mentioned him last Thursday. I may bring him up with him again today. Um, he beat, if memory serves, I think he beat um, Bruno Sammartino at, um, for one of his title reigns. Yes, he did. He beat Bruno Sammartino for the championship and then um, lost the belt, I think. Well, whatever. I don't want to get into it now. But he was a, uh, he was a, a world champion. And he was, in addition to being the first wrestler and such an innovator in his mic skills and his physique and his style in the ring and his look, he was also really the first major wrestler to make uh, prolific use of anabolic steroids. And because of that, two things happened. One, all these guys that idolized him and wanted to be him, they all took anabolic steroids as well. And uh, he, because of his influence, a lot of people died young or developed a lifetime worth of health problems because of their use of anabolic steroids. Billy Graham was no exception. Billy Graham has had very serious health problems for the last 40 years. And when his career ended right there, it was mostly because of complications due to uh, hip surgery. 20 years ago, he had to have a liver transplant. And this is not a guy that, that drank or anything. This was a guy that um, he had, was hospitalized in and out of the hospital, struggled to pay his medical bills for the last 20, 30 years. He's had some some uh, public battles with the McMahons, but uh, I think uh, most recently I think they were on good terms because there they was just this documentary about him that's on the WWE Network that I watched that was pretty interesting. And they seemed he regretted some of the things that he'd done publicly that he'd lied about, Vince McMahon and so forth. In any event, um, yesterday, three weeks before his 80th birthday, Billy Graham died. He was uh, placed on life support earlier in the week. I've been meaning to talk about him, to send a few prayers his way. He has had a tough time all year. He, uh, he was hospitalized as a result of an ear and skull infection. And as of last month, this is a guy that was a monster. I mean, this guy was probably 300 pounds or close to it of pure muscle. Uh, last month, his condition had worsened to the point that he had lost 80 pounds and was being treated for kidney, heart, and lung problems. And yesterday, he passed away, unfortunately. So uh, the man was and oh, it was a legend. That's the only way to describe him. Only way to describe him. And a guy that, in spite of all his demons, in spite of all his admitted mistakes, was very committed to professional wrestling, and he was very committed to God, remained a very devout Christian his whole life, and lived lived that life and walked the walk, would spend, at the height of his popularity, a lot of time volunteering with Christian-related charities, even when he didn't have much money. He would always go out of his way to be charitable with not only his money but his time and um, wishing his his wife the best. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, talking about fertility, he and his wife were never able to have children, his current wife. I believe he had children with his first wife. But um, he his life, I always got the sense. And I'm the thing that's most surprising about Billy Graham, unfortunately, is that uh, he stayed alive till 80. I've been expecting him to die for 35 years. And um, his life, I got the sense, was a very sad one. 
in part because of his own actions, because of his abuse of anabolic steroids. But he's really uh, going to be missed. If you want to comment, you can, 800-848-9222. Here is uh, Jim Cornette uh, talking about Superstar. Superstar Billy Graham was one of the biggest stars in the business, the biggest star in the business at one point. And uh, just, uh, I can't express, and his, his influence on Hogan and Ventura and everybody, et cetera, et cetera. And he, I can't underestimate his contributions to the business in the WWWF and the Garden and et cetera. Well said. 800-848-9222. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, the AC Report, and more still to come. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, George Strait, all my exes live in Texas. George Strait also celebrating his birthday uh, today. 71 years old today. Happy birthday, George Strait. Uh, Still alive, still going strong at 71. I'd love to try and get George Strait on this show. Let me uh, make a note of that here and uh, see if we can't get George Strait on this show. I think that would be a lot of fun to talk with him. Um, Matt Blaze, I'm not sure if you're not feeling well today, but this is an unusual percentage of requested songs actually getting played. I'm not used to this kind of treatment. You're going to spoil me here. Hey, whatever's on the list, if we have it, I uh, play it. Yeah, I think that's what Schindler said at some point. <laughs> All right. Um, you want to say anything about Superstar Billy Graham before we uh, move on? No, you said it all. I mean, okay. the one person that, that really reminded me of Superstar, just because the look was Jesse Ventura. He totally took that look. Yeah, well, and by his own admission, Jesse yeah. doesn't even. I tried to go back and listen to some of my interviews with Jesse Ventura uh, to pull something that he said about uh, Billy Graham. But I, uh, I've i interviewed him so many times, and most of our interviews are so lengthy that I was not about to sit through, even as com- as compelling as it is. I was not about to sit through six and a half hours of talk about the independent political movement, the Kennedy assassination, um, you know, the predator and uh, all sorts of other things in order to find him commenting about superstar Billy Graham for 45 seconds. Maybe that's a project for the weekend. But anyway, um, the uh, I do want to mention you might you heard me do that uh, commercial for the uh, Patriot Cigar Company. I smoked one of these cigars yesterday. It 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 is phenomenal. Yesterday, the one that I smoked was the mother of all bombs. Boy, oh boy, was this something. See, it's a, it's a patriotic 
cigar company. And I'm thinking of actually getting a subscription. I'll tell you what I'm hoping, honestly, now and because it's a great company. I think they're conservative, but I don't know if they are. They might just be patriotic. They actually have a great program, if you go to MyPatriotCigars.com, where you can actually buy a cigar. And this is a brilliant idea. And my only regret about this is that I didn't think of this myself. You can actually buy a cigar for a deployed service member for 10 bucks. How cool is that? Uh, but, you know, I, so I may do that, but I may get a subscription. They have different subscriptions where they send you cigars regularly. It would be nice not to have to worry about going to the cigar store or something, but they have a wonderful, wonderful variety of cigars. So if you know anyone that is a cigar smoker, think about getting these uh, because they're premium, really top-notch cigars. And now that they're advertising with us, here's what my sincere hope is, and I hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble by saying this. I am hoping, because they gave me three or four to try for free, which I appreciate, and um I am hoping that so many people buy these cigars that they never stop advertising so, so that they'll still keep giving me these cigars to try. So it's, it's, it's win-win for them. I mean, if you go to MyPatriotCigars.com and you use the discount code FRANK, you'll save some money and they'll know that you're a listener of mine. But uh, I'm going to – if uh, so I'm hoping they'll still keep sending me cigars for free, but if they don't do that, then I'm just going to get one of these subscription packages. So if you want to do us a favor and do the cigar smoker in your life a favor, get them some of these great cigars. Uh, MyPatriotCigars.com, discount code FRANK. Discount code FRANK. You can't go wrong, trust me. Um, if they like something a little stronger, try the mother of all bombs. If you want something a little milder, get the TNT. They all sort of have different patriotic names. But uh, I recommend, so far I've tried two, I recommend them both. 800-848-9222. I'm hoping there's nice weather out today so that I could try maybe uh, a third. Uh, John is in Brooklyn. He's been patiently holding. Hello, John. What's on your mind? Well, let's talk first about AI, um, Frank. I, I think something like Asimov's laws of robotics will be needed. Right. Uh, we talked about this before, and um, they claim that they're already following the rules of robotics, but it would be nice if that was enshrined in terms of the regulatory uh, the regulatory hurdles that all these companies have to abide by, right? Right. I agree with you completely, which should be legislated. As for George Soros, there's an interesting complication. I understand that over the weekend he had to settle with the Brazilian government. Uh, he was accused of fraud. So, you know, he's been convicted of a crime, and he's had to settle. Uh, otherwise, I would agree with you. I, I think preferably it should be up to the voters in that district. There should be recall elections. However, I think with the preponderance of evidence against him now, uh, Peter King may be right, as he said on John Katzmann's he, I think he might even said said this on Sunday again, uh, program, that uh, he thinks uh, Santos will be gone by uh, by summer. I think that's very possible. Uh, thanks for the call, John. I, um, I could definitely see that. I could definitely see it. I mean, I am amazed that he's lasted this long, to be honest. But when you have no shame, and we've all known people who fit that description, when you have no shame— you really are, uh, you're very difficult to shame, right? All right. Yeah, uh, that's a ticket. 
So um, 800-848-9222. So it's funny. The thing that I like most but also struggle with the most is that I um, I have a lot of friends that are always calling me. And I try to show them certain courtesy by not calling them back when it's convenient for me to call back, which is at 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning. And sometimes, you know, I do have people that I call back at 5.30 in the morning that I know are up, but I I generally try to go back to go to sleep, and then it tends to be a, a bad situation. And so the thing that annoys me the most is also the thing that I count as my greatest blessing, is every day there are all these people giving me a hard time for not calling them back and not uh, socializing with them. And it becomes very burdensome. Hey, can we hang out Monday? Hey, can we get? Can I get you dinner on Tuesday? Hey, can we meet for coffee on Wednesday? And honestly, my whole life is very boring. As exciting as it is, it's very boring. It's sleep, sp- spend time chasing an 18-month-old, prepare for the show, do the show, drive home, sleep. And that's every day. So except on the weekends where there's some departures from that. So, no, I don't want to hang out with you. Please stop asking. And a lot of people are really hurt by this. And I don't blame them, right? They get really offended. I can't believe you didn't come to this. I can't believe you didn't come to that. And honestly, it does give me a negative feeling. My wife, don't don't even get her started on the people that behave this way. It does give me a negative feeling towards these people. So when there's someone who genuinely is always there for me and comes to all my events and donates to my charitable causes and volunteers at this and does that and is a good friend, and when I I have to bail on them, they don't care, and they give me something like, I totally understand, then what I do is I move those people to the top of the list that I socialize with. So tonight, I'm going to meet a friend of mine for dinner before the show, and... um, because he's so cool about me never being able to meet him. So I'm not going to be home for dinner tonight. I'm going to leave a little earlier. So that means my wife and Carmine, they're kind of on their own. And my wife tells me yesterday, because she knows I hate this, she said, I'll tell you what, you know what Carmine and I are doing for dinner tomorrow? I said, what? Fast food. Because you're not going to be there (laughs) to stop us. And um, because I don't feel like worrying about dinner, it becomes such a stress every day. And it's a stress that I don't need and don't have time for. And tomorrow you're not going to be here. We are going for fast food and there is nothing that you can do about it. So I think my wife knows that by saying that, that that's the fastest way to get me never to leave early to have dinner, because I hate the notion that either of them would be eating fast food, but whatever. You, 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 dining options belong to those who show up, right? Steve is in, well, actually, I don't want to rush anybody. Uh, those of you that are on hold, Steve, Dave, and um, everybody else, I will get to you momentarily. And then uh, we'll talk, we'll do the AC report with David Danzis. We've got Brian Kilmeade coming. A lot of positive news on the AM radio front. We're happy to see that. Uh, you can call us at 800-848-9222. Any subject is fair game. Find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, 25 minutes from now, we will go live to South New Jersey for the AC report. Very much looking forward to uh, getting an update on not only what's happening in South Jersey, but New York and elsewhere, gambling wise, because they, there was some fascinating gambling revenue numbers that came out over the last couple of uh, days. And we're going to get into what it means for New Jersey, New York, and, and Nevada and elsewhere. With David Danzis, that's going to be something. The AC report coming up. Big shout out, by the way, speaking of AC, to uh, all our friends listening on Talk 1400 WOND, one of the greatest radio stations in America. Well, what changed? What what changed? Let me run some numbers by you, and let's see if you could put your thinking cap on. Now, unlike some questions that I give that are very difficult to divine the answer to, this one will be very simple to divine the answer to. Even Matt Blaze is going to be able to figure this one out. The United States, the country in which I live in, and I'm sure many of you live in, the United States is experiencing the biggest decline in worker productivity since 1948. That's according to research from E.Y. Parthenon, And many executives have been quick to single out remote work as the main culprit. Uh, I think that's fairly obvious. This is what they cite to uh, prove their point about this. A study published in Nature Human Behavior found that working remotely made Microsoft's remote workers miss important learning opportunities by not rubbing elbows with coworkers who aren't part of their immediate team. More recent research showed that interacting through a screen can make workers less likely to generate ideas. And that's a problem for tech companies needing to out-innovate the competition. I have to say, I, uh, I agree with this. I agree with the premise that remote work tends to make people less productive. And I also agree, um, that, that you're less likely to generate ideas when you're interacting with people through a computer screen. I, I've seen this in my own life. Uh, when you have an in-person meeting, as much as I may complain about having to stay for some of these meetings, sometimes somebody says something that you immediately respond to, either verbally respond or intellectually respond, and it's not necessarily the same thing as when you raise your hand in a Zoom meeting, and by the time somebody gets to you, you've already kind of forgotten the moment of inspiration that you were that you were struck with. That being said, Lifestyle-wise, my wife works from home, and it's not a pandemic thing. This is a job that always would have been working remotely because the company is based in Chicago. My wife works from home, and if she could not do her job from home, forget about our life being different. 
our life would be totally and 100% completely upended. One of us would not be able to work because we would have to figure out something in terms of child care, and uh, we would be really having a tough time. And I see from my wife, I feel like she's working in some cases more and more productively than she would if she was traveling somewhere, working in that office, and coming home. That being said, I do buy these numbers for the most part, that the decline in worker productivity is due to people working from home. So for many industry leaders, accessing a wider talent pool outside of traditional tech hubs isn't enough to make up for these drawbacks. And as the widespread labor shortages subside and layoffs sweep through Silicon Valley, companies are no longer in a perk war to recruit and retain the brightest minds. So the big tech office push mirrors what's going on in the broader white-collar labor market. In December, 13% of LinkedIn postings were for remote jobs. That's compared to 20% nine months prior. So people are still looking to hire remote workers, but not nearly to the extent that they were a year ago. And then I came across this in Bloomberg. And I will tell you, there's a lot of things that I could have predicted as a byproduct of work from home and the work from home culture and the work remotely culture. This was not one of them. Maybe I should have anticipated this. Never. Um, There's been a major underreported side effect to the flexibility of remote work and hybrid work. Blown away by this. You know what it is? Daytime. Drug and drinking habits are rising. I am floored by this. Never would have expected this. Because, you know, when I would work more, slightly more conventional hours, I never really had conventional hours, but when I had hours that didn't involve me coming to work in the dark and leaving in the dark, I would be more likely to go out and do some daytime drinking because I'd go out with my colleagues for lunch and, you know, maybe it's a three-martini lunch, and then um, you, you know, you you have a few drinks after work with your colleagues. That's not the case when you're working from home. And I do work from home, but my, the work from home that I usually do is some sort of show prep, and it would never even occur to me to be drinking as you're working because I feel like you're trying to make the most of your time there. I, I'm very surprised, but apparently... Bloomberg is reporting that this is what's happening. Working from home, away from colleagues, and the professional setting of an office means that for many workers, drinking and indulging in drugs are no longer after-hours activities. 27 million working-age Americans between the ages of 25 and 54 have substance abuse disorder. Now think about that number, 27 million. That's a 23% jump compared to pre-pandemic. And that is causing a lot of people to drop out of the labor force entirely. See, hybrid work, according to this research in Bloomberg, can accelerate a downward spiral, shortening the decline from 10 years to a matter of months. That's the word from uh, Daniel Angris, who's the medical director 
at Chicago's Positive Sobriety Institute. So he told Bloomberg, that's because isolation takes away a key barrier to substance abuse. Spending lots of time around healthy people, chances are, I guess, and it makes sense, I suppose. But when you're spending lots of time around people that are sober, you're not necessarily doing uh, cocaine or spank or uh, crank or speed or anything else. Substance abuse is also often triggered by real-time work stress. And See, that's the other reason this is counterintuitive to me. I would think if you're not sitting in traffic for an hour and a half to get yelled at by your boss and then suffer through the rest of your day to sit in traffic an hour and a half home, that you'd have a little less stress in working from home. So... Um, apparently they're saying this problem is likely to persist as companies continue to allow employees to work from home. Office occupancy rates had been climbing since the peak of the pandemic, but they're still only hovering around 50 percent. I'm curious what you think about this, uh, both the decline in worker productivity. Maybe you think it's something else. Maybe Americans have just gotten lazier. But are we really the laziest we've been since 1948? I think the big difference is people working from home. What do you think is behind the decline in American worker productivity? 800-848-9222. I'll tell you who went off on working from home almost, almost bizarrely. Somebody who slept with his wife might have been working from home at some point. And that is Elon Musk. Elon Musk did an interview with uh, CNBC, and this is what he said on the subject of working from home. I'm a big believer that that, that, that people need to are more productive when they're in person. Agreed. But there are some exceptions, but I, I kind of think that that the whole notion of work from home is is a bit like the you know the the, the fake Marie Antoinette quote, "Let them eat cake." Mm-hmm. It's like it's like it's like really you're going to work from home and you're going to make everyone else who made your car come work to the fact work in the factory you're going to make the people who make your food that gets delivered that they can't work from home the you know the the, the people that that come fix your house they they can't work from home but you can does that seem morally right that's messed up you see it as a moral issue yes i mean i see it more as and just it's, a, a, it's, a, a, it's a productivity issue but yeah. it's also a moral issue people should get off the moral high horse with the work from home um, because they're asking everyone else to not work from home while they do. The, the laptop class is living in La La Land. Whoa! <laughs> okay. Now, I agree that people who show up to work in person are more productive. But are we really saying that people that work from home are, are somehow <laughs> immoral? Because the guy that... that made their car or the person that uh, made their food isn't working from home? Well, I'm sure if there was a way to get that person for, to work from home, they would. That is the most insane thing I've ever heard in a lifetime of hearing insane things, and including from Elon Musk, who says a lot of things that are pretty outlandish. I mean, and then he says they should get off their blankety-blank moral high horse with this BS. Well, you know what? So, I mean, nice work if you can get it. You have all these companies, Tesla, Twitter, SpaceX, have your people come in. But don't call people like my wife, whose job has them working from home, don't call them immoral. 
I'm happy to compare my wife's morality to yours, who refuses, who goes along with censorship in Turkey because you don't want Turkey to cancel Twitter. I'm happy to compare my wife's morality to yours any day of the week. And this whole idea that that you're immoral because someone has to work to get make your car or make your food. Well, by that logic, I don't do a lot of heavy lifting in this job. My friend Bernie McGurk, who's a, a great radio talent, and uh, I still miss, and he was a great guy. He used to tell me, at the end of the day, Frank, we're not digging ditches and we're not doing brain surgery. And then I remember when there was still a lot of construction here at our radio studio, he said to his partner, Sid Rosenberg, when they were using the men's room, there are these guys, these construction workers, lifting heavy things constantly. Um, And they're also demonstrating an enormous amount of expertise building things. And Bernie says to Sid in earshot of me, I don't know if I was included in the conversation, I might have just been eavesdropping, but he says to me, he says to Sid, Boy, you see, those guys, those guys are really working. And sits, yeah, boy, those guys are really working. So if Elon Musk is saying that somehow working from home is morally inferior to working in an office or working in a factory, well, then isn't it also morally superior that people are working hard doing backbreaking work? Picking rice, I know most rice pickers are mechanical these days, but whatever. Uh, Digging ditches seven, eight hours a day, working in a coal mine. Isn't that morally superior than what you're doing, Elon Musk? Aren't you sitting at a computer all day coming up with ideas and stuff? I found that to be, again, I agree with his fundamental point that that people that come in to work are more productive. But for you to go the extra mile, and say that they, the people that work from home are on a moral high horse and um, it, that it, it, it's BS. I mean, the guy is on another planet. Maybe he's did this interview after taking a SpaceX flight to Mars or something. Um, I don't know. 800-848-9222. If you have any thoughts on Elon Musk saying that we are immoral... From for working from home, which I am not, by the way, but uh, I defend the right of people who are working from home. And if you have any thoughts on these numbers, which show productivity among workers in this country to be at its lowest level since 1948, I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. The uh, AC Report with David Danza is coming up in about 10 minutes. Let me say hello to Joe in Queens. Hello there, Joe. Yeah, Frank, I don't want to go into that too much, but part of it's the devastating side effects of the COVID shots, which you discussed last night, so that's part of it. But just in terms of, I think you have to be self-motivated uh, and why aren't people, I, I don't think it's office first alone as much as people have got to find intrinsic motivation. If you're going to run a marathon, you're going to train by yourself, potentially. Nobody's going to be there to cheer you on. Uh, if you're in school and doing papers, there's nobody with a whip beside you to make you do the work. I just think people, number one, have got to be self-motivated. Number two, 
you've got to realize if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, you have to realize your body's reacting not that well to this. And it's just not going to work in the long run for you and got to do something about it. You know, you got to stem the tide and realize it's just not working for you. If if you can't handle alcohol or smoking marijuana, you got to just either cold turkey it or completely curtail it. Well, and that uh, yeah. Seems, yeah. I, I mean, look, I think ever, I'm hesitant to generalize too much when it comes to substance abuse because there are some people that might be able to have a drink and they're they're just fine and then there's other people who have a drink and that sends them you know I spoke about this with Malachi McCourt recently he doesn't have a, a drink because he's an alcoholic and that sends him towards a downward spiral so I I get that I just um I was surprised at that um at that uh, reporting from from Bloomberg indicating that daytime and drug uh, daytime drinking and drug use are such on the uptick because so many people are working from home. I, I, it makes sense the way the people in the article say it, but uh, it was just surprising to me. Thank you, Joe. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, good morning, Frank. Um, one thing... We don't make as many products in this country as we did since 1948 and, you know, the time in between. So when they say the productivity level is down, what are they using as a scale to measure the product? Well, I'll send you the um, the the uh, the survey that they did and the study, but they're not just talking about products created. I mean, it's no secret that the right. that the economy has shifted from manufacturing economy to more of a service economy. But um, what they're measuring worker productivity in terms in terms of every sector, not just the manufacturing sector. Okay, I, I, and I understand that, but they, they've also created they, with the shift. They've also created things that really can't necessarily be measured. So if you're teaching from home, let's say, which they had doing during the pandemic, or you're, you, you know, you're able to switch an administrative job that used to be done in an office now could be done at home. Are you saying, okay, well, you're not sending out as many memos. All right, well, there's not as many things that need to be done because mm-hmm. we're not in an office anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So you're saying maybe you think that this this uh, key finding of worker productivity being at its lowest point in 75 years, maybe at least part of that is a reflection of the imprecise nature of which in how we measure productivity today. Correct. And it's only been three years that had, well, I, well, I don't want to say three years, but a huge three years of COVID where now no one goes to midtown Manhattan. Yeah. Well, what they're saying, and, and thank you, J.R., what they're saying is that worker productivity plunged 2.7% in the first quarter of this year compared to the same period last year. Additionally, this is also the fifth consecutive quarter that worker productivity has dropped. Uh, that's the word from this group, EY Parthenon. So um, the question is, why is productivity dropping? So the CEO of this company... I think he's the CEO, whatever, the head of this company, yeah, chief economist, said when you have an environment in which output is outpacing labor growth, that's an environment of stronger productivity. But when you have the opposite, when output growth is sluggish but labor growth is strong, you have a weak 
productivity environment. And he, he apparently says that's where we are. Pay emerged as the biggest factor that would motivate staff to be more productive. So this group, EY Parthenon, they, they cl- have claimed that remote and hybrid work are contributing to this. I believe it. Uh, I do. Uh, I know there are other factors, the higher rates, the quit rates, the job openings, maybe just the mentality of people. But they do offer some tips on uh, improving productivity. One is understanding where your team currently stands when it comes to productivity. Two is define what productivity means to your organization. That's to JR's point. What is productivity? Three, think about productivity from the top down. And then here's an interesting one which makes sense, but I wouldn't have immediately thought of. Focus on employee health. Very interesting. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hello, Frank. You know, I'll tell you, you you remind me of, like, a law professor, okay? You're you're a philosopher. In this case, it's the philosopher, the law professor versus the entrepreneur. And you would think that the law professor would come out victorious but Elon Elon Musk is a genius, okay? Well, I'm not and disputing that. He is a bright you know, guy. Okay, so he's right. I'll tell you why he's right. You see, because you're you're confusing integrity with morality. Certainly, um, it's I mean, working at a coal mine and doing uh, work of that nature has a certain integrity to it that's above certain other work, but it's not more moral. But well, he, well, he, why he is characterizing going to work versus working at home as more as morally superior is because the steps that re, that you're required from from the time you get up to the time you get to work, all those steps, and I don't have to tell you what those steps are because you do them, everybody does them that goes to work, is is a service to the ethic of work. So you're servicing, you're paying homage to the ethic of work, and okay. that's moral. And you go back to uh, Luther, uh, what was his name? That uh, the the the, um, the Protestant ethic. You're you're being in service of the Protestant ethic, which was considered a moral, a moral, morally superior thing to do. Now, versus, think about that. Versus working at home, where you can get up and you're drooling, you're drooling your breakfast in your pajamas and say, "Hey, I'm working." You know, I mean, the imagery itself. You know, uh, is compelling. Uh, for, you know, for the argument, uh, I get what you're saying. Okay, and uh, actually, that uh, that does make some sense to me, Larry. Thank you. I, I get that. I get that. I still think um, for Elon Musk to take a discussion about productivity and turn it into something about morality is a bit of a stretch for me. I mean, there's no reason you can't be an advocate of working in person. And our owner, the owner of our network, John Katzmatidis, he's an advocate of, of working in person. There are a lot of other radio stations that during the pandemic and even still, they have all their hosts working from wherever they happen to live. Or other people, salespeople, uh, promotions people, all working from home. That was not the case here, uh, even at the height of the pandemic. And I think that's a good thing. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Steve is in New Jersey. Steve's been holding a while. Hello, Steve. Hey, good morning, Frank. Thank you for taking the call. Sure, Steve. Just Thanks for couple, calling. Uh, just a couple quick notes on the great superstar Billy Graham's early days. Um, he spent some time actually training for bodybuilding with Arnold Schwarzenegger at uh, Venice Beach, California, and then after that, he moved on to play professional football. 
for the Calgary um, Stampeders up in Canada. And then after that, he was trained in the Hart Dungeon by the great Stu Hart, the father of Brett the Hitman Hart. But when he left training camp, he presented Stu Hart with a gift. It was a television set. And when Stu Hart plugged in the television, he looked at the back of the TV and he said, Property of the Days Inn. <laughs> I did not know that. I knew everything else that you said except that, that story. That's brilliant. That is hysterical. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Steve. That was uh, that was very good. 800-848-9222. David Danz is joining us in a moment. I can't not take someone with this name uh, while they're holding. Carmine is in Queens. Hello, Carmine. Hey, Frank. How you doing, man? Doing hey, Carmine. I'm in, I'm in Bell Harbor. Outstanding. What's hey. on your mind, Carmine? Yeah, I was listen- yeah I was listening to with, with the rest of the, the I'm 67 years old. I grew up in the in the, the early Bruno San Martino. I I went to at that time it was only every month Madison Square Garden Madison Square Garden I I seen Bruno San Martino Ivan Koloff three matches and then Pedro Morales and then Bob Backlund but you know and then Rick Flair Rick Flair became my 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 favorite wrestler but they came from the NW I think it was the NWA at that time that's right they came over. Remember, you had the 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 the, the tag team, the the two the animal guys, but but nobody ever talks about who fought them all. Dusty Rhodes. Well, I, I'm a Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, I mean, I talk about Dusty Rhodes. His son is still yeah. a big wrestler, you know, you know Cody Rhodes. I I I, 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 ca- I catch you, I catch your show from three to five in the morning when I get up, you know, and every every day three to five. But Dusty Rhodes, here's a guy that. He wasn't a muscle guy. <laughs> you never touched him. Of course, no. I play that. I play nah. that promo hard time all the time. Hard times. The yeah. guy was brilliant, and uh, his sons Dustin and Cody, both brilliant wrestlers as well. And when, right. thank you, Carmen. And when Dusty Rhodes died, I guess about uh, seven years ago, seven or eight years ago, I think I did a whole two hours on Dusty Rhodes. You know, you just keep in mind. And I get emails from this time to time from from people. Talk more about wrestling. Talk more about wrestling. You got to understand my challenge here is there is a sector of the audience that cares nothing about wrestling. So the the challenge here is to discuss wrestling in a way that people who don't follow wrestling will still be interested in. It's the same thing with with, when I talk about aliens. I try and talk about aliens in a way that people are totally dismissive of UFOs and UAPs that they'll be interested in. Same way when I talk about politics. There are a lot of people that write to me and says, Frank, don't talk so much about politics. I try and talk about politics in ways that people that are not interested are, are, understand it. And, you know, that's sort of my challenge. And I guess on some days I do a better job with this than others. But if you're a wrestling fan and you don't um, hear me mention your favorite wrestler and you, you say, hey, uh, how come you don't spend more time uh, talking about Bob Backlund or the Iron Sheik? The reason is because a lot of people, I am testing their patience by even getting a little wrestling talk in. So just bear with me. That's all I'd ask. Live to Atlantic City with David Danzis, the almanac of gambling. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. interesting 48 blocks in America, and I can't think of anybody that I'd rather look at them with than David Danzis. David Danzis is a terrific journalist. He is now the lead writer for both Play NJ and Play NY, and uh, he is the uh, former casino and Atlantic City political reporter at the Press of Atlantic City as well. David, it's been too long. Thanks for joining me on the program. Frank, it has been too long, man, and thanks for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure. No, a pleasure. the pleasure is uh, is certainly mine. So uh, l- last time we spoke, you were simply the lead writer for Play NJ. Now you're writing for Play NJ and Play NY, so you have to cover a lot of the New York gambling activities. Tell me the, the differences in covering the New Jersey gambling marketplace versus New York. What's the same? What's different? How much of a greater challenge is that for you? Yeah, I, I would say the biggest challenge is, you know, Atlantic City and New Jersey is such a, we call it a mature market, right? It's, it's a very established market. Um, there's not really any surprises. There's nothing really that catches me off guard. Um, I feel like every time I, I try to dig in a little deeper on what's going on in New York, particularly with these three downstate uh, casino licenses, there's always something kind of waiting behind the corner that I didn't anticipate or I didn't expect. Uh, so it's keeping me on my toes a little bit, which is nice. I feel like a uh, a young cub reporter again, sort of learning the ropes. So if anything, maybe that's the big difference at this point in time. Give, give us the latest on what's happening with New York casinos. So the, the deal approved by the state legislature, I believe, is three casinos for the New York City area. And mm-hmm. we don't know if that's necessarily going to be in New York City. But what is the smart money saying, David, uh, who, where these casinos are likely to be? What are you hearing? So the, the consensus seems to be that two of the licenses are, are going to go to the established race casinos, right? So we're, we're talking Aqueduct and Yonkers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that that's going to happen. Um, I think if you talk to most people that that's likely, right? Empire City uh, run by MGM Resorts and uh, Resorts World run by Genting Group, they seem to kind of be the front runners for those two existing licenses. You've got one more up in the air. 
And you've got some big names involved in trying to get that license, Frank. We're talking Hard Rock International, Caesars Entertainment, Bally's, um, Las Vegas Sands, Mohegan. Um, so there are some big players that are looking to, to get into New York and specifically New York City. Um, right now, if, if I was to place my money on a front runner for that third license, I would say it's Hard Rock International uh, looking at building a casino out on Willits Point uh, in conjunction with Steve Cohen. Hmm. I really think that they have the inside track on on that license. But well, that's yeah. just me, and this is really, really early in the process. So, so if that uh, were to happen, take it to the bank. if that were to happen, you'd potentially have a situation where you'd have two all-out casinos in Queens, one at Willits Point and one uh, at Aqueduct? Yep. Wow. Yep. Well, um, and, and, yeah, go ahead. And, and a lot of that has to do with just infrastructure and transportation, right, Frank? I mean, I, when we're talking about putting a casino smack dab in the middle of Times Square, you've really got to start thinking about how practical and how realistic that is. Oh, I'm just using that I, I think it's a disaster. Day. I think it's going to be a total disaster. As somebody that has to drive through Midtown uh, five or six days a week, I'm not looking forward to competing with uh, casino traffic, let me tell you. Hey, I see that uh, Jay-Z is apparently involved mm-hmm. in one of these casino bids now. Uh, which one is he involved in, and how does that one look from what you can tell? Yeah, he's involved with the one I just mentioned, uh, with Caesars Entertainment for the bid in Times Square. Um they want to build a, an entire entertainment complex there, right? Not just a casino resort. They really want to blow this out and, and turn uh, casino gambling into a, a focal point of what's going on in Times Square. Um, you know, Rock Nation and, and Times Square and uh, Caesars Entertainment are, are involved in that bid. Yeah, I see. I think a, a place like uh, Coney Island, for instance, makes a lot more sense than Midtown Manhattan for a host of reasons. But we'll, I guess, we'll wait and see what happens. Do you know the timetable for when they're going to announce these picks? <laughs> I wish I did, Frank. If I did, I, I'd be the richest man in the world. Um, you know, there's a there's a three member board that's tasked with awarding these licenses. They're going to make recommendations to the state gaming commission. Um, they haven't done so yet. We were supposed to get some information in March. Uh, here we are in May. We still haven't heard anything. Rumors are that we might hear something now closer to December. All right. Um, some numbers came out this week with respect to the New Jersey gambling revenue. What are we seeing? What are the top line takeaways? Yeah, it's been a mixed bag for, for going on two and a half years now, Frank. And I feel like I'm the only person who keeps kind of beating this drum. Um you know, total gaming revenue in New Jersey is up, right? So when we talk about everything that's going on in Atlantic City and you combine that with internet gambling and sports uh, betting, gaming revenue is up and everything looks great. So that top line number looks fantastic, $421 million for the month of April, right? You, you can't ask for much more. When you start digging into those numbers, though, you start seeing some cracks in the foundation. And really the cracks are when you look at Atlantic City. Um, and again, we're, we're talking about uh, two uh, out of nine properties are really carrying the water for the entire market. And that's just not sustainable, Frank. And I don't know um, why our local uh, politicians aren't paying attention to this. I don't know why our state politicians aren't paying attention to this, because it's not going to get better when that casino eventually opens in New York or those three casinos get fully off the ground and running. Uh, things are only going to get worse down here. So I really wish people would start paying attention to what's happening in Atlantic City because we're trending the wrong way. So just if you can, just reemphasize the the numbers and which direction they're going for the in-person casino gambling versus the remote gambling. 
Yeah. So in person, when, when we talk about land-based casino revenue, revenue, we're talking about money from table games, slots, and poker, right? right? Um, so specifically, Hard Rock and Ocean Casino have been really carrying the water for the entire Atlantic City market, dating back to 2021, when the properties reopened from the COVID closures. And they've been growing at a rate of you know double-digit percentages each month for the year-over-year comparison. So when you compare April 23 to April 22, you know, Hard Rock and Ocean are really the only two casinos that were boosting the entire market up. Um, last month was a little weird. It was Ocean and Golden Nugget, surprisingly. Mm. Um, Hard Rock actually went back a little bit. But internet gaming has been exploding since COVID, right? And it's no secret why. People were stuck inside their houses for a good chunk of 2020. They found internet gambling on their phone or on their laptops or, or their whatever device they're using, and they, they were drawn in. So we're seeing, you know, before COVID started, we'd be lucky if we saw a $50 million a month from internet gaming. Since the end of COVID, we haven't seen a month below $100 million. You right? know, so it, uh, go ahead. I'm so surprised. I'm, uh, on the one hand, I am surprised by that. It's kind of like the conversation we were having about remote work 15 minutes ago. It, but on the other hand, I guess I'm not. I mean, I, when COVID ended and the casinos were reopened, I was eager to go back and play in person, to play craps or baccarat or whatever else in person in casinos, just like I've been doing for decades. Why is everybody not of that way? Were they just so accustomed to the remote gaming? Well, you got to remember, Frank, you and I are, are a certain demographic right, of a casino sure, customer, right? Sure. We go there because we enjoy everything that the casino offers, right? You and I, we're going to have, you know, a couple of bourbons, smoke a cigar, like you said, shoot some dice, play a little cards. We're, we're there for everything. See a show, you know, the whole nine. There are other guys, people, Frank, that are, are gamblers, right? And that's all they care about is just the gambling aspect of the casino. And for their money, uh, you know, to, to, to fi- for lack of a better term, uh, the convenience of Internet gambling trumps, you know, the, the trip into Atlantic City, paying for parking, paying for toll. Yeah, I guess. Getting, I guess so. You know, it, convenience matters. And, and we live in a world where people would much rather uh, be, you know, not have to worry about being inconvenienced. And that's sort of what you're seeing there. So that's, you know, short answer. Uh, talking with David Danzis, you could check him out at uh, PlayNJ.com, PlayNY.com. Nobody better when it comes to covering gambling than uh, David Danzis. One of the things that was supposed to be a game changer when it was legalized more broadly was uh, was sports gambling. Sports gambling, no question about it, provided a big boon to New Jersey gambling revenues. But now New York has moved forward with not just legalized sports betting, but legalized esports betting. What has the increase in the legalization of sports betting in other jurisdictions meant for Atlantic City and New Jersey? It, it, you know, it hasn't had as adverse an impact as I think people expected, but that's not necessarily saying that it doesn't matter. Um, you know, when New York went, went live with online sports betting in, in January 2022, we saw an immediate drop off in New Jersey, but not so much in Atlantic City. Um, and that's because, again, people were using their, their mobile phones to, to bet on sports. They weren't really going to the casinos as much uh, to do it. We've we've seen. I don't even want to call it a rebound. I want to, it's a resurgence in Atlantic City, uh, specifically with the Super Bowl in February, and then with March Madness uh, bleeding into you know the early parts of April. 
sports betting has actually really picked up in Atlantic hmm. City, regardless of what's happening outside of, of our state's borders. So for all the talk of, you know, sports betting is going to be a game changer when it arrived in 2018, you know, we saw that, that initial flash in the pan, but it really never was a revenue generator. Now it's turning into what it was always meant to be, which is an added amenity to the gaming experience in Atlantic City. And it's really become complementary and, and helped boost the casino's overall bottom line. When you're looking at the casino numbers of who's doing what, what Ocean is doing, what Golden Nugget uh, specifically this month is doing, what Borgata is doing, if you were going to make a prediction, not a hope, but a prediction, do you think we will see any of the existing nine Atlantic City casinos close or be sold in the near future? Yes. Um I don't want to go too much into detail because I, you know, I don't want to talk out of school and I don't want to give people the impression that I have some sort of insider knowledge about this when I don't. Um, but just looking at the the view from 10,000 feet, um, it's inevitable, Frank. It, there's there's almost no way that Atlantic City can continue to operate with nine casinos um, with Pennsylvania taking a larger chunk out of uh, the market, New York inevitably going to take a larger chunk out of the market. And as we've been talking about, internet gaming uh, taking a chunk out of the market. You know, I I work with some incredibly intelligent people. There was a huge conference in East Rutherford last week uh, with lots of very, very intelligent industry folk. And they all say that internet gaming hasn't, they use the word cannibalized, uh, brick and mortar gambling. They're all wrong, every one of them. Um, and I'm going to have a story coming out next week about why they're wrong. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a real concern. Um, I hope, you know, your legislators in New York are paying attention to that as the ones that are pushing for Internet gaming um, and what they hope to achieve from that. Uh, there's no question that online gaming has taken away from brick and mortar. And that's only going to exacerbate and, and get worse here in Atlantic City as other places legalize wow. uh, iGaming and, and more casinos come online. There's, there's not a whole lot of good news coming from Atlantic City, Frank. I'm mm. sorry. No, hey, I, that's why we uh, talk to you, because you give it to us straight without uh, necessarily sugarcoating it. Hey, so we're, uh, we're on in Baltimore right now, WCBM in Baltimore. There's casino gaming in Baltimore. We're on the Nevada Talk Radio Network. There's casinos all over Nevada. There are uh, – we're on in upstate New York. Uh, there's a casino in the Catskills, a Resorts World casino. It used to be that there were only a handful of places that you could gamble. Now, I don't know anyone that is more than a day's drive away from a major casino. Is part of the problem, not just for Atlantic City, but for everybody, that there's just too much gambling out there and too much available casino opportunities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is simple economics, right? Supply and demand 101. Um you know, the, the reason why Atlantic City thrived for 40 years was where else were you going to go? You know, <laughs> you, know we, we, you could get on a plane and you could fly to Vegas. You could go to Reno if that's what you wanted to do. But if you lived on the East Coast, it, it was Atlantic City or bust. And, you know, then the, the reservations in Connecticut got casinos and Pennsylvania got casinos the Delaware got casinos, you know, and, and now it's you're right. There's there's not a state on the East Coast with the exception of, you know, what, Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine, uh, that don't have casinos. Yeah, so, yeah no, there's no people there anyway. Um, but um, <laughs> when I was in Las Vegas uh, uh, two years ago, 
One of the things that uh, I didn't get to see the show, but one of the things that people were making a big deal about and uh, that everyone was talking about and there were a lot of advertisements for was something called absinthe. And absinthe in Vegas was uh, that was supposed to be the the bee's knees. For people that don't know what what is absinthe and what are the folks behind absinthe doing in Atlantic City? All right. So we're on at four o'clock in the morning. I can get a little colorful with my language. Uh, absinthe, <laughs> absinthe is a circus on LSD, yeah. right? That's, that's the best way to describe it. Um, it's just over the top, uh, acrobatics and, and live entertainment and, and a little bit of cabaret and singing. And, and I mean, it's just an entire live entertainment experience. And you're right. Absinthe has absolutely taken over the Las Vegas entertainment scene. It's, it's arguably the best show on the strip. The folks behind that, uh, it's a company called Spiegel World. Um, are bringing a year-round live entertainment residency here to Atlantic City. It's the first in, in casino gaming's history in Atlantic City. This is a huge deal. Um, they are refurbishing the entire historic Warner Theater um, on the Atlantic City boardwalk. It's now part of Caesars Atlantic City. Um, we got a really great walkthrough yesterday of what this space is going to look like. You're going to have a small, intimate theater, about 400 seats in there with, you know, uh, beautiful leather-bound booths and, and mezzanine seating so you can see everything that's going on. And then they're going to add in this dining element. Um, and again, this is pulling something straight from Vegas. There's a restaurant called Super Frico uh, in the Cosmopolitan, and they describe this as Italian-American psychedelic. And again, it's sort of this interactive, immersive dining experience, wow. uh, similar to the Mayfair Supper Club that you have in Vegas, um, where you know the actors and, and the performers from this Spiegel World show are going to be uh, part of your dining experience. So it's all very sort of uh, new age and interactive and, and, and um, trippy <laughs> is the best way I can say it. It sounds great. Impression. What is the timetable for this? Yeah. So it's called The Hook. Um, we're going to have a, a premiere at the end of June. And then the world premiere of The Hook in Atlantic City is going to be July 21st. Well, I, I am um, going to make sure that I am there for that. Frank, I got you on the short list, man. You're my, you're my guest. I got I, you and Rachel on the short list. Outstanding. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, I won't make you uh, wake up in the middle of the night to talk to me uh, as appreciation for that. David, it's always a treat to talk with you, my friend. Thanks for the great work you're doing. You got it, man. Talk to you soon. Take care. David Danzis. Read him at playnj.com, playny.com. What a resource. What an intellect. What a sharp guy. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Still to come, we'll talk news of the day, news of the world, with the one and only Brian Kilmeade in a bit. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Got on board a westbound 747. What to do All that talk of opportunity TV breaks and movies rang true 
It never rains in Southern California. Maybe that's why they always have these drought warnings. Uh, This is by the great Albert Hammond, who is celebrating his birthday today. Happy birthday, Albert Hammond, 78 years old. Well done, Albert Hammond. You know, my uh, my thanks again to David Danzis. When whenever I speak to him, I'm just always struck at what a bright guy he is and how quick he is and how he chases these stories wherever they go and look, he has a lot of gambling sponsors on his website. Not that they pay him directly, but he doesn't have to tell the truth. He could just be a mark for all these casinos like a lot of other people are. So, I think that's interesting. Speaking of Atlantic City, one of the things that I really enjoy is whether it's in Cape May, whether it's in uh, Atlantic City, I enjoy going into antique shops and finding vintage Atlantic City memorabilia. So for whatever reason, I was cruising on Amazon and eBay for Atlantic City memorabilia, like vintage memorabilia. I mean, ideally, I'd love um, an old chandelier, maybe not a chandelier because it's a little big, from the Trump Taj Mahal or the Trump Plaza or the Atlantic Club, like a casino that's defunct anymore. Something a little bit more substantial than an ashtray. And they didn't have any great stuff on there. So if anybody knows of either in person or online some place that I can peruse some really cool vintage Atlantic City memorabilia, please email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com because uh, my mom was asking me recently, there's an occasion that she wanted to buy something um, for me for, and I said, you know, what do I really want? And I thought, I'd love a vintage Atlantic City something, but then I looked online, couldn't really find anything too great. So if you know of a spot, let me know. Your call's in a moment. Until then, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thank you for listening. I am a lifelong AM radio enthusiast and fan. And uh, if I was awake right now and I had some other job other than the one that I have right now, 
which involves me speaking to a lot of AM stations. We're on a lot of FM stations as well, but primarily most of us, most of you are hearing me on an AM station. If I wasn't right now speaking on an AM station, I would be listening to an AM station if I was awake, because depending on what profession I was in, chances are I might be asleep. But who knows, right? It's, it's like it's a wonderful life, parallel world, everything everywhere all at once. You really don't know. But I love AM radio. From the time I was a child, there's something so special to me about just turning a radio dial or if you're in the car or have a digital radio, depending on what kind of radio you have, hitting scan and just discovering something new. Or if you're turning the dial, seeing, am I between two stations? What is that? What is that trying to creep its way through the static? I love it. To me, uh, that acronym that Curtis Lee always ascribed to AM was very apt, active-minded. And it's a very special medium to me. But aside from the emotional attachment of it, there's a lot of technological advantages to AM radio over FM or over satellite, over podcasts and things of that nature. And we've talked about them before, and we're going to do a segment with Michael Harrison next week on this, so I won't belabor the point. But... AM radio can reach much greater distances than FM radio. A lot of people are surprised to hear that because FM radio is so much clearer than AM. And you can hear FM radio a lot of times if you're in the tunnel, which you can't with AM. You can still hear uh, WABC in New York, for instance, all over the country, depending on the weather, depending on the time of day. There are days and nights where you can hear WABC in 38 states and Canada. There's not an FM station not a legal FM station in existence that can do that. But so much of the reason that AM radio has remained vibrant has had to do with cars. People keep AM radio in their cars. And over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, we've seen music, which used to be a staple on AM radio, gradually migrate to the FM band. And we've seen the AM band be a place where you hear news, sports, information, opinion, things of that nature. And it's great. It's worked out well for a lot of people. AM has also provided a crucial lifeline in the event of local emergencies. Hurricane Sandy, for instance, when nobody had power, everybody's cable was out, everybody's internet was out, nobody could charge their phone. AM radio let people know everything they needed to know. We were doing, I was working with Curtis on a local AM station in New York at the time. We were broadcasting, I think, 12 hours a day. And I'm not joking about that. I think it was literally 12 hours a day. We would have to take turns, not just Curtis and me, but other people that were working at that station at the time. We had one generator running the whole station. And we would have have to take turns waiting in line at the gas station to fill the gas tank that we would then use to power the generator because the radio station had no power either. We were all on this one little generator that allowed us to entertain and inform tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in the midst of a crisis. So I am very passionate about AM radio. And in one of my local commentaries yesterday, which if you're listening around the country or you only listen to this program on the podcast, you don't hear my local commentaries, you really need to subscribe to that podcast. 
of my local commentaries, Frank Morano interviews and more. You can get it at redapplepodcastnetwork.com or you can just search Frank Morano interviews and more on any podcast app and hit the subscribe button and you'll hear all my local commentaries. I mentioned an idea yesterday, which I've been brainstorming about for a while, and I was going to lead a major lobbying effort in support of that I thought was a great idea, but I'll be honest with you, I thought it was a little bit of a stretch. My idea was, and some of you may have heard this, some of you might remember it, my idea was let's have Congress pass a law, and in addition to Congress doing it, the New York State government could do it, the New York City legislature could do it, uh, the city of Baltimore legislature could do it, the state of Maryland's legislature could do it, state of Nevada's legislature could do it, any local legislature, any local government, municipal or statewide, could also do it. But let's have Congress pass a law saying that going forward, we are not going to, we the government, are not going to purchase any vehicles from an auto, any auto manufacturer that doesn't offer AM radio. And I got a lot of interesting feedback on that. A lot of people have been retweeting that. I put that out there. Well, what I heard yesterday has gone so much farther than that. I was listening to the uh, Katz and Cosby show, and they were interviewing Dave Donovan, uh, who is the head of the New York State Association of Broadcasters, or the uh, New York State Broadcasters Association. And he revealed, and this is the first time I heard this, but I've become a student of this over the last 18 hours, he revealed that there is genuinely bipartisan legislation in both the House and the Senate that goes much farther than my proposal. Much farther. Listen to Dave Donovan on Katz and Cosby on uh, WABC New York yesterday describe what he... Well, let me let him explain it. This is Great news for AM listeners, for your listeners and other, and the 82 million people in the United States that rely on AM. Um, A bill was introduced today called the AM Radio for Every Vehicle Act. And as you said, it was a bipartisan bill in both the House and the Senate. And if you look at this, in the Senate, it was introduced by Ed Markey and endorsed by Ted Cruz. It was signed on to by um, Senator Ben Ray Lujan, out of Democrat out of New Mexico, and also signed on to by J.D. Vance, Republican out of Ohio. <laughs> Timmy Baldwin is on there as a Democrat out of Wisconsin, and Deb Fisher, Republican out of Nebraska in the House. Josh Goffmeyer out of, uh, as, you, as you've had on the, the station before, Republican out of New Jersey. He's actually a Democrat. But you also have Rob Menendez, Democrat out of New Jersey, has signed on. So what does the bill do? So, again, it's got broad bipartisan support. Republican Ted Cruz, Democrat Tammy Baldwin. Republican Tom Kane Jr., Democrat Josh Gottheimer. Uh, Republican Deb Fisher, Democrat Ben Ray. Uh, Republican J.D. Vance, uh, Democrat Rob Menendez. The bill is incredible. It basically, basically it takes the premise... If the government can require seat belts and airbags in every vehicle to protect drivers, then it should also be able to require an AM receiver to ensure Americans can access emergency alerts. That's the idea 
behind this legislation that was introduced yesterday that would require car makers to maintain AM broadcast radio in new vehicles at no additional charge. This is huge and goes much farther than what I was proposing. So for car models that have already dropped the feature, until it can be brought back, if this legislation passes, and I think it has a good shot, if you're listening to the kind of broad spectrum of support that it has, it's also endorsed by the FCC, for instance, um, until it can be brought back, the what, what this legislation does, it would mandate that a warning label alerting buyers what is missing, meaning AM radio, be slapped on the window at the dealer showroom. This is phenomenal. So if passed, the bill would direct the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to issue a rule that requires automakers to maintain AM broadcast radio in their vehicles without a separate or additional payment fee or surcharge. The Government Accountability Office would also be required to study whether alternative communication systems could fully replicate the reach and effectiveness of AM broadcast radio. Spoiler alert, they cannot. Um, This is really exciting. And this could be the thing that saves AM radio. And I got to give a shout out to John Katsimatidis. He has organized a nationwide, he's our boss here, but he has organized a nationwide coalition of fans and grassroots activists to put the pressure on the car companies not to do this. Because so far, eight automakers have removed AM radio from their electric cars. That's according to a survey done by Senator Markey, who's a progressive Democrat from Massachusetts. Ford has said that going forward, it's going to exclude AM receivers from the dashboard of all their vehicles. Not just electric cars, but gas and diesel as well. Of the 20 automakers that uh, Senator Markey surveyed, several others were noncommittal. So this effort to preserve AM's place in the dashboard has been most pronounced in rural America, uh, places, you know, that uh, are in need of the kind of information that you get on AM radio. Many people still rely on AM broadcast radio for breaking news. In the case of severe weather, AM radio is really critical. Now, a lot of conservative radio hosts, because there's a lot of very successful talk stations that happen to be conservative, they've also suggested that the move to drop AM is geared towards reducing the political influence of uh, talk radio. Ted Cruz has said that. Well, you know what? Look, there's a lot of very good um, liberal media outlets on talk radio, on the AM dial as well. I will, have, I will, of course, admit that conservative talk radio is dominant on the radio dial. But I, I, think, um, I think there's a lot to be said for left of center or centrist programming that's on AM radio as well. The issue is not what's being broadcast. The issue is keeping these stations alive. Because these auto manufacturers, I'm going to get into this with Michael Harrison next week, so I don't want to belabor the point. These auto manufacturers are potentially talking about killing an entire industry, an entire way of American life for the last hundred years. And it should not be permitted. So that's that. 
Um, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. We're going to talk to Brian Kilmeade in about 15 minutes. You know who commented on this yesterday? I was listening as I was driving home. The last guy that you would ever expect to comment on this because he has not been on AM radio in 40 years. And that's Howard Stern. Howard Stern, who some people said have helped, has helped kill AM radio with his movement to Siri, uh, to uh, satellite radio and his time on FM radio, which showed that talk can work on FM. He was very vocal yesterday in support of AM radio. This is what he said. This kind of freaked me out. I was I was reading an article how how like a lot of car manufacturing companies now are eliminating AM radio from the radios. Yes, yes that's uh, it was announced a while ago, and now it's actually happening. They're just not going to put an AM radio in there. I think that's wrong, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, I'm a fan of AM. Like, okay, I don't listen to AM radio anymore. I don't listen to any radio. I listen to satellite. I really mm-hmm. do not listen to radio, I'm but I also same. don't, I don't drive a lot. And sometimes like talk shows and stuff are kind of cool on AM radio. And I don't know. It seems to me they're see, I'm one of those believers that AM radio could have a resurgence if they got the right people thinking outside the box with that thing. It's like a kind of an interesting medium. Now, if car well, I dealers, think that one of the things that has happened, Howard, is that AM Radio stations are often owned by companies that have an FM station in the same town, and sometimes they just simulcast. Yeah, but both, this is like um, uh, programming on the say, you know, on each station. To me, it's like, um, like you know how like a lot of cab drivers in New York have like lost money because they bought those medallion licenses because yeah, Uber's yeah. around now. And it's like, what about all those guys who bought AM radio stations? And if they're not available in car, I mean, that's it. The game is over. That's where people listen to AM radio. They don't listen to it. Well, at home. you know, that's I don't think. One. So I completely agree uh, with Howard Stern there, although I part company from him in that I listen to AM radio every day. 800-848-9222. Uh, hats off to all of the bipartisan sponsors of this legislation and the FCC. Rob Menendez, Josh Gottheimer, Ed Markey, uh, Ted Cruz, Tammy Baldwin, everybody. This is something uh, I would love to see passed forthwith. And this is something that both President Biden and President Trump should speak out on. And they should make their positions clear on this. Are you going to sign this legislation? Are you going to mandate that every car sold in this country has AM radio? What's your position, President Trump? What's your position, President Biden? What's your position, Governor Ron DeSantis, not to be confused with George Santos? Tell me. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to a couple other things I want to get to before we get to... uh before we get to uh, Brian Kilmeade. Well, all right. A lot of people have been holding a while. Let me get to as many people as we can here. Larry's in the Bronx. Hello, Larry. Yeah, how you doing, Frank? I'm well. Uh, I wanted to ask you something. I've been wanting to ask this for a while. Maybe you covered it already today, but... How come, like, I like to listen to AM radio. I love, you know, I have for years in the car, whatever. How come, like, now, if I'm listening to, and not ABC, not your station, but to the fan or to NBC or whatever, or WINS, I'll be listening to to uh, WINS, 1010 WINS, to AM radio, and they'll tell me I'm listening to 92.3 FM, 
They'll always say I'm listening to an FM. A few stations do that, even though I'm, I'm literally listening to my AM radio. Do you, is that all part of what you're talking about? Well, no, yes and no. Yes, you know and what I'm talking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm about to explain what yeah, the sorry. stations that you just mentioned. They are, as you heard Robin Quivers allude to there, they are simulcasting on both AM and FM. So uh, they're simulcasting. You mentioned 1010 Winds in New York. They're simulcasting also a 92.3 FM. So they're trying to they're trying to promote their FM simulcast. Same thing with the fan. And it's worked in a lot of cities around the country. So uh, it it does work. It does work in a lot of places around the country. I think it's a shame, though, because in the case of um, in the case of winds, for instance, that um, that is such a waste of a great FM frequency. So you basically throwing away a viable AM signal in winds to go with with the same format. It just strikes me as such a waste. I'd rather see them do something creative, either in terms of music or or spoken word or something. But what Odyssey, the company that owns those stations, and I got to be careful because I think there are I think we're on some Odyssey stations, so I don't want to offend anybody. But they're giving up, forfeiting for lack of creativity a world-class, still valuable FM signal to add unknown, modest listeners to the AM. And so, I mean, when there was a time when 92.3 FM was a talk station. John Minnelli, who's been a guest on this program, was the program director. And I don't know how the AM-FM news simulcasts are doing around the country, but I, I, I am curious now, and I actually will check it out. But... Simulcasts are very unique animals, and there are many variables as to their success and what constitutes success in the minds of the owners. Many of them just use them for sort of icing on the cake. But Odyssey, they were just delisted from the stock exchange. They are laden with debt, and the... And I don't want to say anything bad about them while they're considering carrying our show. And this sounds like a cost-cutting move that a lot of these stations are, are, are doing. And I don't know that it's going to be successful in doing what they want to do. The people that own Wins, for instance, they want to lower the ages of the demos, which I think is just – that's part of the problem is this, this this obsession with younger demos, younger demos. I'm thrilled that our listenership is a more mature audience. And I am not sure that putting the same station, the same format on FM does that. So uh, so that is not at all to do with what we're talking about, though. I think what, the, what these car manufacturers are doing is, is a separate animal from what these radio station owners are doing. The radio station owners are over-leveraged in terms of debt, for the most part, not WCBM. Not WABC, not uh, the not the Todd Starnes Radio Network, where we're very proud to be a part of that, KWAM in Memphis. But they're overladen with debt, and they're, they have a dearth of creativity. I agree with what Howard Stern there said, that if there was some more creative approaches to what, what was on the AM dial, 
you wouldn't see these stations struggling. I think there could be a resurgence. Anthony is in New Jersey. Hello, Anthony. Hey, Frank. How are you? Good. Um, I just wanted to touch on uh, the the reason people have their opinions on why they're taking AM radio out of the cars. But the real reason is because the AM frequency um, interferes with the frequencies that the motors on the EV cars run on. So it would cost them a lot more money to put shielding in for these for this frequency so that the motors run properly in, w- w- with the AM frequency because there's no reason to take the AM out of cars. It doesn't cost them any more money or any less money. You're not saving much money so Anthony, taking it out. Anthony, that's the real reason. Anthony, I, that, that is what uh, the electric vehicle manufacturers are saying. And okay, I'll buy that. Well, now put aside the fact that we have people like Elon Musk and his brilliant team of engineers that are smart enough to create an electric car, but they can't figure out a way to um, <laughs> provide AM radio that interference. But okay, let's go along with that. But Ford, they're taking it out of their gas vehicles and their diesel vehicles as well. So if the rationale is we're taking it out of electric vehicles because of interference, how can that be a defense for what Ford is doing, taking it out of their gas and their diesel vehicles? Well, they're just looking at saving some money, I guess. They're, 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 they figure they're just going to run with it if they can save some money and everyone else is going to do it. They might as well save some money and, do, and go along with it. You know, That's thank you. Thank you, Anthony. I, I get the electric vehicle argument. I'm sure there's something to be said for that. But it's nonsense. It's nonsense. You can make an electric car, but you can't make an electric car that doesn't interfere with AM radio. It's nonsense. And you know what? If the government passes this and tells them that these private auto manufacturers, that they have to do it, just like how they have to have anti-lock brakes, I think now, they have to have airbags, they have to have um, seat belts. Every single one of these car manufacturers whined and crowed when Ralph Nader forced them through his activism and his work to put these features in. They all said we can't afford it. They all said it's going to make the cars too unaffordable. You know what? They managed. And they'll manage by keeping AM radio in these vehicles, which have been a staple of these vehicles for 100 years. 800-848-9222. George is in Manhattan. Hello, George. Hi there. Listen, I have a a couple of points regarding AM radio. I've been listening to it for, uh, God knows, since time immemorial, you know, and I love it. You can have all the computers and tablets and everything, you know, at your disposal, but nothing beats AM radio and, of course, talk radio, you know, and it's so convenient. You just switch it on and off. As simple as that. You know, computers are for the Internet, basically. You know, it's not convenient to listen to uh, particular stations because once you start listening to stations, you get confused. You go from one thing to another, and, you know, you're all over the place, you know, without any focus. Now, as far as uh, electrical cars, a bad idea. As far as uh, AM uh, radio uh, in cars, uh, at least you can do one thing. Get a crank radio on your own, leave it in the car. 
you know, you don't need, you need a battery, as you know. Other, another thing regarding, uh, I have a question vis-a-vis boycotting possibly American-made automobiles. Uh, yes, by what's Ford your question, George? Because we right. have the $1,000 okay. minute and Brian Kelly. Here's my, que- here's my question and point at the same time. Uh, for example, let's say uh, American cars, American manufactured cars like Ford, they stopped installing uh, AM stations, right, uh, or band. Uh, and Chinese-made manufacturers came up with the best, uh, most powerful AM uh, radios in their cars. Are we going to buy Chinese and boycott well, uh, American cars? I, I, hopefully not, right? But hopefully we're not put in that position. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of people probably would want that AM radio from that Chinese or Japanese auto manufacturer. Uh, David is in the Bronx. Hello there, David. Yeah, Frank, as you know, or maybe you don't, I'm a radio enthusiast, and I've been so for over 40 years, okay? Now, AM radio has been dying out over the past decades. Stations have been closing down, and part of it has to do with technology. Most station owners don't want to invest in digital radio technology for AM because it's expensive, and it would also cut down this complaint about interference from electric vehicles. But you guys don't want to spend the money. And as far as interference from electrical vehicles goes, it's not just a one-way street. Electric vehicles will interfere with radio reception in non-electric cars as well. That's why Ford is attempting to drop AM radio. And the last thing I'll say is that there's money, like everything else has a lot to do with this, because advertisers will not pay as much to AM stations if they're not going to have people in vehicles listening to their advertising. So let's be honest about what's really going on here. Your station owner likes to use a lot of hyperbole because I heard him on Fox say that it was because of politics, which you even acknowledged is not what's actually well, happening. Well, no, I said in my opinion, I don't think that, it, that it's what, it, what it's about, but it could be a variety of factors. But um, when you say, you know, I don't, I'm not sure of your point. I get all the things that you just observed. One, I'm not, I'm still not sure I understand how electric vehicles will screw up AM radio reception in a gas vehicle that's manufactured by the same company. How does that work? Okay, I'll tell you I'll tell you exactly how. Electric vehicles, because of the technology that's in them, they generate very strong electromagnetic fields. I have listened to someone who specializes in this on um, YouTube. But what happens is if I was driving by in a regular car and I had my a station tuned into an AM station, the interference from that um, the car next to me which is electric would make that station almost unlistenable. And uh, you okay. can try that. By I didn't know that. AM, uh, you can put an AM radio next to a computer and see what happens. It's a similar type of thing. Yeah, I um, will look into that, David. That's the first I've heard no, of this. Uh, David, thank you. I have to run because we have the $1,000 minute and Brian Kilmeade. Um, 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, I will get to you. But if you are the seventh caller to that number, 800-848-9222, then uh, I will give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you could do it, then you will be $1,000 wealthier. Simple as that. Seventh caller right now, 800-848-9222. And Brian Kilmeade, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's a good day for singing the song, and it's a good day for moving along. Yes, it's a good day. How could anything go wrong? A good day from morning till night. Yes, it's a good day for shining your shoes, and it's a good day for losing the blues. Everything to gain and nothing to lose, because it's a good day from morning till night. I said to the it sun, is good proven that it is impossible to have a bad day if you have heard this song. If you start your day listening to this song, it's impossible to be in a bad mood. Uh, I mean, we, we may, if things if things don't pan out for us with the rights to certain songs, we may make this one of our top of the hour theme songs. It's great. Um, Perry Como, of course, is the brilliant vocalist you hear here. And uh, today would have been his birthday. Of course, he passed away about 22 years ago, but we remember him through great songs like this. Happy birthday, Perry Como. All right, it is time for us to play... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. And let's say hello to Mike in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you doing today? I'm well, Mike. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, how many are you ready to uh, you ready to play this game? You know how to play? Uh, no, go ahead, though. I'm ready. Okay. All right. Just answer the question. It'll be all good. We'll, we'll do well. You uh, know, just don't get nervous. All right. Um, okay. The timer will begin after I ask you the first question. How all many right. How many moons does the Earth have? How many moons does the Earth have? One. What NBC sitcom did Jerry Seinfeld star in? Seinfeld. <laughs> what playwright wrote Romeo and Juliet? What playwright wrote Romeo and Juliet? I I don't know. First name William. Does that help you at all? <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. No guesses. Okay. William. William Shakespeare. <laughs> what was the name of the special prosecutor who released a report on the Trump Russia investigation this week? John Durham. Who was the only bachelor president? The only bachelor president. Mm, oh boy. Uh, I don't know Taft. All right. No, good guess. William Taft was uh, happily married. In fact, his wife was a lot more politically ambitious than he was. Uh, James Buchanan. James Buchanan. Uh, oh, okay. Also, until Joe Biden, our only president from Pennsylvania. Mike, uh, hang on. Uh, give Kenneth your information. I'll give you a consolation prize. Meantime. Uh, we have our opportunity to do our weekly check-in with one of the hardest-working men in broadcasting, New York Times best-selling author, co-host of Fox & Friends on Fox News and a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, the one and only Brian Kilmeade. Brian, uh, what about James Buchanan as the subject of one of your next history books? Surely there's a good James Buchanan story that you've got to be able to tell. 
You know, I don't really have a great James Buchanan story, but uh, very much into William McKinley at TR, uh, as well as uh, William Howard Taft. And you're right about his wife. She was the one who bolstered him, told him he could be president, and don't worry about Teddy Roosevelt. He's not going to be a problem. Roosevelt was at the zenith of his popularity, and he always regretted winning that second term and not and saying right away, I won't run for a third. Because he was, you know, he's still in the prime of his life. He got elected because McKinley was, he became president because McKinley was shot and he was VP. So he had seven and a half years. He said, that's enough until he got there. And when he got there, he was so popular. He's like, I want to change my mind. But my good buddy, William Howard Taft, I told him, you know, you'll be my heir apparent. I'll help you win. But his wife, the whole, uh, when Taft lost confidence and said, this guy's too popular, I can't replace him. It was his wife that pushed him. Well, I, for one, uh, sign me up for the next chapter of the uh, Brian Kilmeade presidential anthology series because uh, I'd love to hear. I'd love to read a book on the on the, the written by you and from your perspective on the Taft-Roosevelt relationship and how both of their wives might have affected their relationship with the other uh, fella. Hey, uh, Brian, it's uh, it's fortuitous that here we are speaking a week later, after you and I had a conversation about superstar Billy Graham, uh, one of the most pioneering wrestlers of the 70s and 80s, passing away at the age of uh, of 79. First time we've ever spoken since Billy Graham has no longer been alive. Uh, give me your take on the life and legacy of superstar Billy Graham. You know, it's kind of interesting because when I, I was one of those kids that just loved wrestling. And you couldn't get it. I had the UHF antenna. They would have the Saturday nights. I was allowed to stay up and watch the late night one. I guess it was probably at 11 o'clock. But I used to watch with the UHF antenna and try to zero it in. And superstar Billy Graham, because I love Bruno San Martino, would always scare me. <laughs> because I'm like, this guy is so big. He's so strong. If he ever goes against San Martino, he's going to win. And I think he did, if I remember correctly, he did end up winning. But That's he right. put his feet on the turnbuckle. Well, he's a bad guy. He's going to cheat a little bit, you know. Well, I was shocked that this that the referee missed it. I mean, those referees. You think these umpires are bad? Back in the seventies, the um, the referees the referees really missed a lot. Yeah. Uh, also, as I, I you know, I talked a little bit about him earlier. It, it is a shame how his health and uh, probably his career was. Um, ruined irreparably, I would say, with his use of uh, anabolic steroids when uh, a a guy like Bruno San Martino uh, had that same kind of uh, Billy Graham strength but without the the steroid use. Hey, uh, a lot of talk this week on the debt ceiling front. It's looking like there's some progress. Last week, President Trump said that the uh, Republicans should cause a debt default, which I, I personally think is pretty irresponsible. Where do you see things going? going at this point with these debt ceiling negotiations, Brian? Well, so far, Kevin McCarthy's played this brilliantly. And you really see Republicans be as coy as this. But, you know, for Joe Biden to dig in and say, oh, yeah, I just want a clean debt ceiling. When we know that Trump had to give in to get the debt ceiling raised with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer twice. And if you just look it up, he had to give in on a certain amount of spending in order to do it. And Agree not to put Obama taxes into place. It would have been very unpopular as Joe Biden tried to beat Trump in the election. And Obamacare is, uh, you know, still very much. People don't talk about it, but it's still a huge problem. But for Joe Biden to dig in and say, I just want to deal uh, a clean debt ceiling and then see the what's going on and knowing that 
the world's economies uh, and the world leaders are looking at him and then realizing that he lost all leverage because Kevin McCarthy says, yeah, I'm not budging. They say, well, show me what you'll do. Kevin McCarthy passes something and says, shows us exactly what he wants to cut, repurposing pandemic money, putting a work requirement into uh, welfare, revisiting certain programs, going back to 2022 spending. We're not talking about 2012 or 2002, 2022 spending before this mammoth bill he passed. And all of a sudden, Joe Biden looks around and says, he gave me a program. I dared him and he came up with it. And now I'm about to go visit the Western uh, economic leaders. And I, it looks like I'm about to default on my debt. So now he looks terrible. The world's going to be asking him what's going on with this deal. They're not going to be asking Kevin McCarthy. So as he goes over, he's making all these statements to stabilize the world economy. And then I, you look around and go, wait a second. He lost all leverage. McCarthy's now saying, yeah, when he comes back early from his trip, staffers are working. It looks like we're going to get something done. And I think this is a could if this does stand this path, it's a huge win, win, win for McCarthy. Well, and ultimately, if uh, we don't default, it's a win for the country, however that uh, that comes to be. Um, I know you've been all over this all week on both radio and TV. On Monday, you have the special counsel, John Durham, releasing his long-awaited report looking at how the FBI handled uh, the investigation into the Trump campaign's alleged ties to Russia. This came after four years. This report came after four years investigating the FBI's investigation. What were you? What do you think are the key takeaways here, Brian? The key takeaways are this. And I watched Adam Schiff last night because I wanted to torture myself on MSNBC. And I went. They, they had Adam Schiff's going to be on because they're trying to throw him out of the House of Representatives. Why? And and I don't know if you heard my interview with Will Hurd, who's a CIA guy who's going to be running for president. And he was telling me in the break, I don't know if you get like this. Sometimes you talk to people in the break sure. and you forget what's on the air and what's not. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so I, I'm say, I always say to myself, did I say that on TV? So I was talking to him in the break and he said, we used to sit around and we used to say, where is Howard Schiff, where is Adam Schiff getting this information? We'd watch him do a press conference. We have the same intelligence. And he'd go, no, there's no doubt about it. There's collusion here. It's right out in front of our faces. What I'm going to be able to tell you in X amount of days will let you know that Donald Trump knows he's, uh, he's colluding with Vladimir Putin, what they have. Get. And then Will Hurd was on the same committee and said, you know, what is he getting? And actually wanted the question answered is, is he getting as chairman? He should be sharing this information. Now, Will Hurd is not the biggest Trump fan, not an anti-Trumper. So he was willing to, he was open to maybe Donald Trump having a relationship. I, Brian. He yeah. got because he was playing to the press. All I want is one question to Adam Schiff. Do you think that Donald Trump was colluding with Vladimir Putin in Russia to win and to, run, to win an election and run a country? Now, if he says yes, that goes against the Mueller report, the IG report, and now the Durham report. If he's honest and says no, all three of those reports make him look like a complete liar. If he says, I do think they colluded, he's continuing to be a liar. Yet, he, Frank, he wants to be the next senator from California. Right. That's a scary thought. 
Uh, Durham himself in this report concedes uh, with all the damning stuff in there about the FBI and the leaking and the anti-Trump agents involved in this investigation. Durham concedes that uh, neither the lack of judgment nor the anti-Trump bias that he found at the FBI crossed the realm into criminal activity. Do you think that what's in this report, do you think maybe Trump overpromised on the crime of the century when um, really the only crime that Durham got a conviction for was the single lawyer who doctored an email? In a way. But I would say this. What if I told you that there would be a movement with the press, with our intelligence and lead law enforcement agency to make sure Donald to, to go out of their way to make sure Donald Trump didn't win an election by coming up with a scandal synthetically? putting that scandal on steroids in his presidency, launching an investigation that cost $30 billion, only to find out that what Trump was saying all along was true. I had, Russia had nothing to do with the election, my presidency, or any of my decisions. So in the big picture, he is right, because we've never seen this before. The word crime, you know, it's not like I'm talking to a law enforcement person in Donald Trump or a great legal mind. In his mind, you know, when you ruin the lives of Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, Carter Page, and George Papadopoulos, it seems to me fundamentally that's criminal behavior. You made up things they did. You put Papadopoulos in jail for a couple of days. You know, Michael Flynn lost his house. He was totally set up by that idiot James Comey. And Paul Manafort was in solitary confinement. And they almost arrest. They were one day away from arresting Jared Kushner if it wasn't for Abby Lowell coming up with facts about the fact that Jared Kushner had nothing to do with Russia. So when you see this going on, I could see Trump Trump going, I'm trying to run a country. I'm trying to put out multiple international fires. They made up a plan. Now we see Peter Strzok's text messages, the hatred, the promise we have a plan B should he get elected. Hillary Clinton, everybody knows he's an illegitimate president hurting us on the world stage. If you, from Donald Trump's perspective, this is criminal. From Don, John Durham, who's spending life in law and order, says, um, but uh, I cannot find a crime. He tried to prosecute two, and they should have been convicted if it wasn't Washington. I, I'm losing you uh, a little bit, Brian, but uh, let me just ask you on the DeSantis front. It seems like we're getting closer and closer to him officially jumping into this race. A lot of the Trump people are crowing about the uh, Trump numbers, the poll numbers, in a hypothetical matchup with DeSantis. How do you game out the uh, primary at this point? And if there's room for a third Republican candidate that's not named Trump or DeSantis, who do you think ultimately ends up occupying that third lane? You know, that's what I'm doing the the Saturday show about. And I'm just trying to say, guys, can we stop pretending that spring training is where you crown champions? Remember, there's no President Howard Dean. There's no President Hillary Clinton. There was uh, no President Bill Bradley. There was there was no President jo- John Giuliani. Kerry for a yep. while. So all I'm saying is Ron DeSantis isn't in yet. He's got a great team. He's got a ton of money. Nikki Haley, I, I always said, everyone thinks I'm crazy. I think she'll be there in the end. Tim Scott's got something special. And, and let this thing play out. And when you're in these small states with these very rural communities, you could win them over literally one by one. 
So let's see. Let's see what that stage looks like. And let's see what challenges they throw in Trump's face from the records indictment that's probably coming and the one in Georgia that's probably coming. We don't know what else is is down the pike with this crazy attorney general, Letitia James, that we have that wants to suddenly make the Trump organization the worst that's ever existed and how much they're going to find him. So let's just wait and see. But Trump is doing great. Trump is his speeches are better. His team is the best he's ever had. But I I'm I'm humble enough to know that I don't know. And I can't wait for every for all the uh, the twists and turns that come with it. Brian, we'll uh, leave it there. Thank you so much, as always. Uh, we'll be watching on TV, listening to you on radio. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in person at Talkers. All right. Go get him, Frank. Thank Th- you. Thank you. Uh, 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Radio superstars. This song no longer available on uh, iTunes. Uh, so he, Stevie G, was kind enough to make this song available, though, for anyone that requests it. So if you want a copy of this song, you can email me, uh, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com and I'll connect you with Stevie G and he'll get you a copy of this. So that'll be something. All right. Uh, without further ado, let's give people 15 seconds to say whatever they'd like at 800-848-9222 as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike! Morning, Frank. A.M. Amplitude modulation all morning, anti-monotonous and meditative, able-minded, amazing material, always Murano, absolute magic, mostly. Brandon. Hey, Frank, that was a pretty tough question for number five. Not everybody's a presidential history buff. David. Yeah, uh, anyone on Social Security... You better hope that they make this deal with the debt limit. Otherwise, you may not get your check on time. Thank you. Raji. Abomination. Our own poor seniors uh, are losing a major part of their benefits, which are being diverted to Ukraine and to the illegal invaders. Thank you. Neil. 
Lucky Frank, you like cigars, you got a cigar appetizer. Now you got to find a vodka appetizer and you'll be like Sliwa. You'll never leave work. <laughs> Russ! Frank, I didn't make myself clear. I do want AI to be used as digital police to deter sociopaths who use two tons of steel and rubber to work out their inadequacies on the roads and endanger the lives of those who drive safely. Jeffrey! Keep AM radio. It's critical to national survival. That's why people buy. That's why people buy military radios. You know, they because it's, they understand the critical nature of it in an emergency. Rocco. Uh, yes, Frank, my brother from another mother. I have too much to say to fit it into 15 seconds, but let me run through. Perry Cuomo, a great Italian American, grew up in a family of 13. Cannesburg, PA. Uh, also, AM radio, it's all about the money. It's all about the money. They could fix it, and they know it, but they don't want to. Uh, Saratoga, the gap. Rusty. Yeah, Frankie. Remember what happened to Julius Caesar with that crew you got around you. Keep your eyes open. You e- know who I'm talking about. E. Frank. Yes, I remember AM radio when Lindsay was the mayor, and I used to play with his uh, niece on my front uh, house. But I got to tell you, um, you know, Joe Biden should look at himself and say, hey, man, you know, it's getting bad out there. Thank you, E. Frank. That about slams the lid on things for today. All right. Tomorrow's Friday already. Wow. Uh, We will have movie reviews with Debbie Debbie Schlussel. Marlena Schiavo is going to be here. We're going to do Ask Frank Anything. So come armed with some good questions, some creative questions, some different questions. You can stay in touch with me on the world of Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, you can also email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. And uh, I will respond. I will read every email and generally respond to just about everyone. Frank Morano, good day.